0: Roll podcast mobility is really the ability to do the things you want to be able to do with your body do you have your native range of motion and can you control that native range of motion
1: how do we move with ease? How do we maintain
2: flexibility as we age and address issues before they become injuries?
0: There are ways that you can change your environment so that these are just things you do without having to rely on willpower or motivation.
2: Today, we dive deep into all things mobility with two legends of movement, Kelly and Juliet Starrett. Dr. Kelly Starrett is a globally renowned physical therapist and strength coach. And his wife, Juliette, is a three-time whitewater rafting world champion and CEO of The Ready State, which is the mobility coaching company they founded together. They've worked with some of the world's premier athletes, as well as everyday average folks. And together, they co-wrote the recently published Built to Move, which is this sort of holy text on all things movement. Your range of motion doesn't have to change because you age. We also talk about how to future-proof your body from injury and many other fascinating and important topics. And it's all coming up quick, but first. We all get it. Sometimes the news can really wear you down. That's why Wildcard, a new podcast from NPR, feels like a solution. It's an interview show that gives a special deck of cards to a whole bunch of fascinating guests, all in the hopes of sorting out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, all party game. Wildcard comes out every Thursday from NPR. Listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. We're brought to you today by On. We're brought to you today by Brain FM. You know that thing when you have a bunch of intense work that you just have to do, but the mind doesn't really want to do it? You're telling it, come on, focus, but it keeps getting distracted or agitated by nonsense, and you go through this painful sort of mini-war to rein it in, to settle it down and just concentrate on the thing. Wouldn't it be great if there was something that would ease or eliminate this process? I don't know, like something you put in your brain through your ears, that would be great. And the good news is that it does exist. It's called brain.fm, which is this sonic platform that leverages science to create tunes specifically crafted to optimize brain performance for a specific task tunes that contain patterns that shift your brain state with something even more effective than binaural beats called neural entrainment, so that you can more easily focus on that thing or lure you into the sleep that persistently eludes you. Personally, I notice it the most when I sit down to write... Typically, this experience floods me with anxiety and a near lethal dose of the big R resistance that Stephen Pressfield talks about. But now I pop on the headphones, I dial up brain.fm, click the focus feature, and the process becomes, I mean, look, writing is still hard, but now it really is so much easier to get into that state of flow and stay there. So, if you're ready to unlock your focus and productivity, I've got a special offer just for you. I ask them to give my listeners 30 days free, and you can get it at brain.fm slash richroll. I bet you'll love it just as much as I do. Okay. Kelly and Juliet are just absolute wizards of pain-free movement and mobility. And look, we're only given one body in our lives. And this conversation uh, really inspired me to take further ownership of my body. And I certainly hope it does the same for you. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Kelly and Juliet Starrett. So nice to meet you. As I said, when you walk in the door, uh, I feel like you guys are old friends. I've been following you for so long and just appreciate all the incredible content that you share with the world so liberally. And uh, although I probably haven't been the best student <laughs> along the way, <laughs> I do watch the videos and I've listened to you guys on many, many podcasts. And I'm really excited to have you here today on the occasion of, of Built to Move, the new book. And uh, I, you know, it's like, there's so much to talk about. I don't even know where to begin. <laughs>
0: Well, I I just want to shout right back out at you because you are an OG in the space, and we we were talking before the podcast. But Kelly and I have been listening to and following you for so long, and you're just—it's been such a pleasure to watch this whole thing grow, and just the library of amazing podcasts you've created is so cool. I appreciate that. It's like forget I, that I about know. time. Yeah. I can't
1: believe <laughs> I don't know, just really <laughs> yeah. it's such a pleasure to be here. Oh, Thank no. you. <laughs>
2: um, in thinking about uh, today. Uh, you know, it occurred to me that it must be, it must be very gratifying to see uh, like this mainstream discourse around mobility, functional strength, stability, all these things that, that you, know, you guys have been shouting from the mountaintops about for so long. It feels like culture is finally catching up to something that you, know, you guys have been steeped in forever.
0: I think you're right. I mean, there's actually just an article in the Wall Street Journal the other day about how to improve your hip mobility. Uh And I was like, okay, mobility is having a moment if there's a Wall Street Journal article about how to improve your hip mobility. So um, I I think, yes, I think uh, people are starting to get the message. I will say, though, that I, I think there's still quite a bit of confusion around what mobility means and why people should care about it. And so I think that's one of the things we're trying to do in the world is continue to try to sort of clarify what that means, at least to us mm-hmm. um, and and help people understand why they should care. And
1: mm-hmm. I, I might just add that I've had to adopt a mantra, the glacial pace is the breakneck pace. Yeah, this I've how, heard you say that, I it, love that. It cool. is really difficult to change or to influence or to give people better tools and let it permeate. You know, at risk of sounding doom and gloom, you know. Fitness has done a really good job of becoming very sophisticated. Mm -hmm. And there are great trusted resources. Some of the people we talked earlier about, but maybe we've left a whole lot of people behind. And if it's starting to happen where we can have these kind of bigger conversations, then it's it's a reflection I think of people recognizing that maybe what we've been doing hasn't really served them as well as we thought. And that there's a big opportunity. There's I think a mismatch between the truth, and I think we really saw it in the pandemic of, you know, how are people able to self-soothe or take care of themselves or feed themselves? They didn't have kettlebells at home, they didn't know how to cook, and we just sort of left people behind. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, is, it is gratifying very much. And I'm also sorry for popularizing the word mobility because I think it's like, yeah. it's like I invented it's the like, word it's core. It's like the
0: least sexy word <laughs> yeah. ever. We're like, I can't yeah. believe we've had to say mobility this many times no, in our no, life. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, you were the first to really popularize it. And then it became part of the common you know, vernacular and you had to, it's so much so that you had to change the name of your, your company <laughs> <Yes>. from <laughs> Mobility Wood to The Ready State. Um, but in looking at, at, at you know, kind of telescoping up and trying to understand what's, what has happened, and the way I see it is yes you 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 kind of cut your teeth working with elite athletes Olympic athletes special forces first responders, all these like kind of highly specialized people who are very performance oriented or mm. or who have like very specific goals that they're striving for and through that process you were able to not only help these people but you know learn and get you know uh, really you know into the deepest trenches of, of what this is all about um, but then you can take that and through this book and now kind of what your current focus is to translate that for the mainstream audience. And I think that the time is really right for this for a couple reasons. The first of which is there's an explosion in interest in longevity and certainly, you know, a core principle in trying to live uh, you, you know, your longest, best life is your functional strength and mobility. Can you get up off the ground? You know, are you able to move? Are you able to put a bag in the you know above your head on the airplane and all that kind of stuff? Um, and then also uh, this 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 sort of rising interest in in rewilding our lives, right? We you, this is something you talk about in the book and 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 refer to quite you know, quite regularly that we have unwilded ourselves, right? And so the principles that you teach, although they're highly applicable to all of these elite scenarios, are more broadly applicable and more profoundly applicable, I think, to everybody who's thinking about, you know, what's it gonna be like when I turn 80? And, and how come I don't feel so good when all I do is stare at a screen
1: all day and then go home and watch Netflix? Well, I think we can even go a step further and say that in the last chunk of time where we've got to go in and see everyone's dirty laundry, people's lives are on the line or professions are on the line about how their body works. has really given us an indication of what are core essential practices off of which you can build elite performance. Because you understand mm-hmm. that being a professional athlete is tricky. We have family and nutrition and travel and sleep, and there's a lot of you know masters to serve in that world and one of the things that we have come to realize is that if we could truly take sport and realize its potential then sport was a laboratory through which we should transform society mm-hmm. and that was that's really been a lens and one that we weren't I don't think really ready to adopt fully 10 years ago but now we're realizing that that's our sort of our our you know our calling and in so much that we're trying to get and take these lessons. That way, sport can actually mean more to us. It can be a laboratory and a place, a teaching hospital, a test kitchen, where we can really understand what happens when people are under stress and all these different situations. Mm -hmm. And simultaneously, we saw that some of those basics get missed by the best in the world. They have blind spots. And then we find that a lot of people are confused about what a good, Foundational practice looks like, and we should be able to take those lessons and actually say, "Hey, look, we understand that you're a, not an elite athlete, but you're just a you know just a middle-aged dad who wants mm-hmm. to stay up with his local mountain bike club. That's me. And what are the ways where I can do that in the context of my busy life, so I don't have to you know throw everything away? And I think that's a, that really." is an opportunity for us to make sense of all of the, you know, bright people working in this high performance world. Yeah.
0: And, and I would just add too that, the other sort of lens um, through which we, uh, I, I think have evolved as humans over the last 10 years. You, you know, mean we, us. Together? Yeah. yeah. Both of us together. But, you know, when we wrote Supple Leopard, we were really focused exactly like you said on, you know, elite athletes Mm -hmm. and how to perform better and lift more weights and run faster. And that was really our focus, both as individuals and and in terms of what message we wanted to put out into the world. But then we've spent the last year, last 10 years, raising kids in this like really quaint suburban neighborhood um, around Mm. busy professional parents who are not in the health and fitness business at all. So while we have this whole cohort of friends and professionals, professional colleagues who are and they're all like us optimizing their health and tracking everything and taking the right supplements and you know trying whatever new exercise program is out you know in contrast we were we're also friends with a whole community of people who are, you know, busy ad executives and attorneys and tech people and, and maybe they never exercise, but, but what they, what they share universally is they actually all really do care about their health and they are interested in durability and longevity, but, Ultimately they're very confused about mm-hmm. what to do, where to start. Um, you know, we've really become this node in our community where, you know, people anytime there's some new health thing out, people are like, Should I be intermittent fasting? Wait, should I switch to keto? Should I do the whole thirty? You know, should I try F forty five? Wait, should I should I do zone two cardio? How much should I lift? And um We've just been this source of, of questions and seen the amount of confusion that just sort of everyday people who care about their health have. And they, they, there hasn't been sort of, we, we wanted to be able to say, you know, hey, we know, like, how much should I sleep? Here's built to move. Right. You know, how much should I take care of my body? Here's built to move. Um, so it's Start really here. been this sort of 10 year evolution of you know, spending time in a community of people who, who really are focused on health and care about longevity and durability, but really have no blueprint mm-hmm. at all. Yeah,
2: it really is a paradox. We've never had greater access to information, but there's this waterfall of inputs that that ultimately do nothing beyond just paralyze us, right? Because we just don't know what, what to choose. Like this is something I'm experiencing right now with a lower back issue that I have. I'm, like I'm sure we're gonna get into that because I'm gonna make it all about me, but um, but yeah, it, you know, you think about like morning routines or any, it's like, oh, it's like, oh, if you wanna optimize, you know, like optimization and all of that, it's like, I don't have three hours in the morning to like do my sauna and do my cold <laughs> plunge yeah, and, and do my meditation and stare at the sunlight and then, jour- yeah, like, and then journal. And then I have to, med- you know, like all these things, it's like for the normal person, they're like, just, just you know, can, I, can you just give me something that works? within the construct of my life. I'm yeah, not trying to it. optimize or be an elite athlete. I'm not gonna join the seals, but <laughs> like, I just, you know I just don't wanna feel like crap. And it would be yeah. great if I had a little bit more energy to, you know, when I get home from work and my kids are demanding my attention.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, your mention of your low back pain um, is, is also sort of a very important thing that I left out when I talked about those people in our community. I mean, what we see in that in that group are people who don't really care about having shredded abs and they don't care about optimizing at all, um, but a lot of them are dealing with pain and they, mm-hmm. you know, they aren't sure how to manage that and are worried that's going to become their identity. And, and in many cases, um, their sort of ongoing pain issues have taken them out of the things they love to do physically, um, which then as you know, has all these downstream consequences because so much of what's so, you know, so much of the community that many of us get revolves around some kind of physical activity, or whether personal it's hiking identity. Or, mm-hmm. or personal identity sure. or your pickleball club or whatever it is you do and so when people get sidelined from being able to do the things they love physically it has all of these hardcore downstream consequences especially in terms of their mental health mm-hmm. and so that's kind of the other piece we saw is that you know these people again you know they they want to be out of pain they want to feel good in their body and they want to be able to you know pay, play a game of pickleball on the weekends with their friends like mm-hmm. that's their their goal and We, I don't think in the health and fitness space have been speaking to those people. I think there's a bit of a change um, and a bit more of a focus on basics lately, you know, coming in from our community. But I think, you know, you're exactly right. Like they could care less about optimizing. Right.
1: (laughs) Sometimes we we get to work in camps and I was at a big camp for water polo at a big division one university. And so all of the superstars are there, all the athletes. And then there's a hundred teenagers there. Mm -hmm. And I ask, and I do this all the time. I'm like, how many people in here are pain-free? And you would think, you know, you're a 15 year old woman, like, you know, can you have pain? And every hand doesn't go up. No one is pain-free. The reality is that this pain is really an experience that is human. And one of the things that I think is happening a little bit, which is great is that we're shifting this narrative about who owns pain. Because what we said for a long time, especially in the athletic community was, mm-hmm. pain is a medical problem. And that trickles down to, well, I don't have time to manage my pain or my pain's not so bad that I can't do my job or live my life. So mm-hmm. I'll just have this nagging thing until it gets so bad, I can't occupy my role in the family or do my, you know, occupy my role in the team. Or, you know, if, you, if your back hurts so bad, you can't go to work, that's a medical emergency. And so one of the things that we've been trying to shift is saying, hey, look, there's a whole lot we can do to empower people to be able to self-soothe without bourbon, without THC or ibuprofen or opiates, the way we literally handled it as a medical problem. People, we left people to become feral in managing their own pain. And I think as we are getting more complicated or more complex and sophisticated about this, one of the things we know is that pain doesn't mean injury it doesn't even mean tissue trauma or damage. It's a request for change. So part of what we're trying to say in this book is, hey, we can try to treat pain and use it just as another metric. Like if you were stiff this morning because you were a big workout yesterday, you're not thinking you know, you've got you know, something, you, know, you didn't mm-hmm. contract rabies, you just are sore right. Right, from your run. And so if we can shift that narrative a little bit and then also empower people that, hey, there's a whole lot they can do. And some of that is sleep. And some of that is nutrition. And some of that is, is down regulation. But all, a lot of it is there's some inputs you can do that are really safe and really easy. And then we can have the next conversation because maybe you don't wanna go for a walk because your knee hurts.
0: Mm-hmm. One quick thing I will add though, is that if you want to make all of my busy working mom friends like scream at the top of their lungs to the hills, it is tell them to do those things as a morning routine and, uh-huh. and tell them that if they wanna be healthy humans, <laughs> like it, it literally, if you wanna like, make a bunch of like 45 year old women real mad. It's that morning routine stuff. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. they're like, I'm, I'm making breakfast and lunches for my kids and driving to the drop off lane. And, you know, what are you talking about? I should meditate for half an hour and journal. You know, they go crazy. So, um, you know, we definitely, we haven't done a good job of speaking to that audience. Well, even
2: beyond <laughs> that, and I'm, I'm speaking from personal experience as a time crunched person who's interested in their their fitness you know, I know, and who's dealing with some pain right now, I have all kinds of protocols and exercises and do that. And all of them are like, you know, kind of small little things and, you know, like just air squats and, you know, that kind of stuff. A lot of the stuff that's in your book and I still have a mental barrier to doing them because like, I just wanna go throw some weights around or like get my workout in and feel like I got something done and get to the studio and I can't be bothered. And that doesn't even like account for when you're, like trying to be a competitive athlete and time crunched where it's all about your fitness and your training and the kind of stuff that you talk about in this book just feels um, indulgent or something that you would do uh, you know, if you had, tons of time, which you don't, or if you're in a crisis situation, right? Which obviously right. has led me to this place that
1: I'm in. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. you, however you wanna get <laughs> yeah. there is, is, yeah. is ra- reasonable and rational, you know. right? It's, I wait till it's crisis. That's, you know, I like a lot of pressure. I'm sort of a procrastinator. Uh-huh. And, and athletes a with a high
2: pain threshold. There's right? also so, that too. Yeah, they'll dig or you whole just, deeper. that's or, right. Yeah. I mean,
1: so, you know, one of the things I think is really, important that we have wrapped, started to really wrap our heads around is this behavior modification, habit forming idea. And so Juliet points out that, you know, we can't just give people lists of things. Hey, exercise more, eat more fruits and vegetables. Like that seems Mm -hmm. not to be working very well, as well as it could. And so some of this, I think what, one of the things that I think is good in here, and we actually came up with this idea working with the Marine Aviation Weapons Tactical group was looking at, okay, you're very time crunched and you're underslept, we have 24 hours. Where are we gonna fit these behaviors that don't also ask you to give something else up? How do we expand what it is you're doing, not take away? Mm -hmm. Because if you are coping with your family and stress and management, because you need to go Peloton or run or deadlift, whatever it is, what we don't wanna say is, hey, why don't you go to a, you know, a balance class or, you know, yeah. <laughs> like that's, you're yeah. not, you're, <laughs> you're not gonna do that. Drive somewhere and yeah. go
0: to like a one hour balance yeah. class. You're like, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. So and also
1: like be bad at it and yeah. like, you know, be Also be bad at yeah. it, yeah. Yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the real question is trying to look at what a 24 hour day time schedule is and say, where are the places we have some agency and some control. And then we start to say, well, how can we constrain and The environment a little bit, so that you don't have to make another heroic, like you know, I'm gonna get up off the couch now and you know, and juice or or, you know, whatever it is that you're doing. You know, we're people have a finite amount of will. How can we shape the environment so you don't you can do the right thing Mm -hmm. automatically without having to make a a heroic decision? Yeah, I mean that's very
2: similar to the kind of things that Dan Buettner talks about with respect to the Blue Zones. It's sort of like looking at these cultures that have a long history of longevity and happiness and trying to deconstruct, you know, how they've arrived in this place and then create a template for our modern world. And so much of it is about making that healthy choice or that healthy behavior, the convenient and easy choice as opposed to the burdensome the only choice. thing. Yeah, otherwise it's not. It's not gonna work.
0: So Kelly was just, I think as we told you, on a ski trip in Japan. Um, and he was, sh- he had for most of the trip was sharing a room with another guy and the guy got a cold so they needed to separate rooms. And they got to the next hotel and the hotel staff was kind of freaking out because they're like, well we don't actually have an extra room. And when their guide actually pushed a little more um, and got some more information from the hotel staff, it mm. turned out that they just didn't have like a Western room available. Uh, and by Western room that means the bed is high up off the ground, and there's yeah. a you know a normal like an American sized table, and you know the sink and shower are at our height. Um, but they did have plenty of Japanese style rooms where the bed is on the floor and the table's on the floor, and you shower <laughs> sitting on the floor. And you know, but in in their mind, they're like, well, this American guy can't handle this. And yeah. Kelly's like, I've been waiting Little for this my know. whole life. <laughs> yeah, like Mr. Mean, me, maybe choose me. Yeah, yeah choose yeah. me, choose me. But it is you uh-huh. know, Kelly took a video of this room, and I was like, man, you know, it, we wouldn't all have so much trouble getting up and down off the floor, if we got up and down off the floor to go to bed and, mm-hmm. you know, even things like, like the, you know, he showed me the video of the room and even things like the air conditioning controls are like at that level, like knee level, mm-hmm. um, because the presumption is you're going to be sort of, you know, moving you're around on the ground, you're squatting on the ground and, you're cr- the yeah, ground you're and that's crawling where you're, around. Yeah. Yeah. And,
1: um, so, so your range of motion is not one more yeah. thing that you have to add in. Yeah. It's just built
0: in. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, we see in those blue zones, it's, it's, you know, people aren't making a choice every single day to do these habits that are good for them, it's just, it's, their, their environment right. is perfectly set up so they aren't making choice, it's just what they do. And, and there's inherent soft,
1: you know, less technical, I didn't take this turmeric and do this secret scroll program. I had to walk to the market and I saw my neighbors. And so suddenly I feel like I live in a community, mm-hmm. right? And, and there are all of these sort of loose connections and one of the things that happens is that all of those behaviors start to stack. And I think that's one of the, the problems. We have experts, Matt Walker's book is great. Um, but sometimes you you fail to kind of think about how well my non-exercise activity during the day, the number of steps, actually makes me tired enough to actually fall asleep. Mm-hmm. And you know I start making decisions about some of the things I'm going to do and put in my body, not put in my body, because it'll affect my sleep later on. And and suddenly what we start to see is that man, if we get people who are rested, they start to feel better and their pain starts to diminish, or their brain becomes less sensitive, or easily sensitized, or perceiving their body as a threat. And then we start to roll a little bit, you know. and then you wanna move a little bit more, you're a little bit more excited at four o'clock when you have a window of opportunity. So I think that's one of the magic pieces here is how do we construct a day to day that isn't crazy, that anyone can wrap their heads around that also just begets these one plus one equals three moments. Yeah, just nudging
2: you gently yeah. in the right direction, you know, repeatedly throughout the day, every single
1: day.
0: And I'm like you, Rich. I wanna um, suffer and breathe hard. Yeah. You know, if I and, and I it often It doesn't count for
1: shit. Yeah, exactly. You got like that I feel like I have on, right I and Julia have, can suffer. I
0: have one hour a <laughs> yeah, day. <I'm> sure.
1: Real <laughs> yeah. suffer. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> I have um I have like Let's say one hour in my time crunch schedule a day, and I'm always going to default to choosing to do some form of suffering. Um, you know, whether that's a crossfit workout or mountain biking or something like that, I'm always going to choose that. I'm never going to be the person who's like, I should probably take a recovery day, and instead, I'm going to go to a yoga class. And I mm-hmm. enjoy yoga, but I mean, I am never going to be someone who chooses going to yoga over doing a workout if I have if I only can choose one. Um, and so I'm in the same boat as you. And in, in in order for me to actually figure out ways to do some of these sort of range of motion, mobility practices and practice things like balance. Like it has to just be sort of like baked into other things I'm doing. Otherwise I literally won't do it because I often feel like I really have that one sacred hour a day to do what I want. And what I want is workout.
2: Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier that uh, there's a lot of confusion around what you mean when you talk about mobility. So let's just clarify that. And I kind of wanna build on that to get into the various you know, principles that form the framework of this book and your philosophy.
0: Well, I mean I'll start and maybe yeah, take a you, swing at you know, it. Let's Go, take girl. a swing at this. I yeah. think
2: I mean at this point you ought to be able to define it, right? <laughs> yes, Come yes.
0: Um, yeah. to us, uh, you know, mobility is is really the ability to be able to move freely through your environment and do the things you want to be able to do with your body, whatever those things may be. Now, we we offer a lot of tools, which we call mobilizations, which are things you can do to help improve your mobility and range of motion. Mm-hmm. But you know, to us at the highest level, it's a it's the ability to move freely, ideally without pain, or at least minimizing pain and feel able to do the things you love to do. And if I added a- How did I do?
1: Pretty, pretty good, <laughs> yeah. for an attorney. I, uh, you've been in the game for a minute, I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> I would add your body everyone agrees that your shoulder should be able to do certain things and that your spine should be able to do certain things and your hips should be able to do certain things. Every physician, every orthopedic surgeon, every physical therapist, we all agree how much shoulder is normal, how much your ankle should be able to move. The problem is that we don't give people benchmarks for what is normative or what you should be able to do. And our lives sometimes don't ask us of that. And so suddenly when we have pain or a problem, that range of motion is never part of the conversation about, hey, I see that your steering wheel doesn't go all the way to the left. Let's just make sure that you can, you know, mm-hmm. the pilots where they take off, you know, they check to make sure everything's working right. So we could also define mobility as do you have your native range of motion and can you control that native range of motion? So are you a skilled person? And what Juliet said is all of that is important, but really what is it you wanna do in your world and environment and how do you wanna express this body? That's the most important thing. And I think that's where we got in the weeds. You know, yeah, hip range emotion is important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if it prevents you from doing something or you're having pain and that's also conjoined with the fact that you don't have access to that range, maybe that's the reason you should care.
0: Well, and like, let me just give you one example. Like if you just asked anyone on the street, like, do you care about your hip range of motion? They're going to be like, no. Why would I care about mm-hmm. that? Um, but, but as an example, we were recently talking to a friend of ours who has a four-month-old baby and has both sets of parents visiting, and their his parents are like in their mid-sixties, so um, you know, not that much older than us. And they, uh, his mother is able to get up off, get up and down off the ground and sit with the baby, but his mother-in-law can't get. Down onto the ground or up off of the ground, and so can't sit on the floor and play with the grandchild, and that's one of those things that you don't think about until right. it's, it's like a use it or lose it kind of thing. But like that right there is hip range of motion. So you may not care athletically about hip range of motion because you're not trying to run faster or lift more weights or you know whatever an athlete might need to care about hip range of motion for. But you know most people would say, man, do you you know do you want to be able to sit on the floor and play with your grandchild when you have one? And they'd be like, yes. I I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the reasons why people should care about their hip range range of motion.
2: Right. I, I, I feel that humans are not very good at casting their gaze that far into the future though. So you know, true. Especially like, it's yeah, not if until- if you're 25.
0: You ha- yeah, She'll like under we all... 20, like,
2: yeah. yeah, you're just like, I'll deal with that when I can. You you like, that's, the, not gonna, yes. or that's not going to happen to me, yes. especially with an elite athlete. Like, forget about it, right? So, yeah. the barrier to being able to, you know, convince somebody that these things are important has to be—it's like a high bar for you, right? To, to yeah. like communicate with people, right. like, hey, you know, I, we can talk about longevity. How long do you want to live? What is it that you want to be able to do when you're 80 and 90, et cetera? But when you're 30, even in in your 40s, and and you're essentially pain free or you don't have some kind of injury. Uh, that's you know that that's a challenge, like yeah, you know. It but is. it is true that like whether <laughs> it's heart disease, diabetes, y- you know, any kind of brain degeneration. Similarly, with our physical bodies, like these things are progressive. And if you're not working on this stuff far in advance of those aging years, um, you're going to have a problem. But if you do undergo, you know, t- you know, sort of shoulder the responsibility of, of doing these things that you guys talk about so much you're taking out this insurance policy to be able to do all those things in your later years. But it's just that humans are not good no. at like, you know, evaluating the <laughs> cost benefit analysis of these sorts of things. And, and yeah, our environment
1: so gives us a lot of cues or mm-hmm. guides us into poor decisions. I just, I think New York Times had an article just recently about how some of our foods hijack our brain chemistry, right? Our some modern foods these umami's. We just think, oh, they're so good. So. Here's a story, I was a young physio student watching the cardiac catheter lab. Mm. And uh, I'm watching a really wealthy kid, a wealthy man in San Francisco and his whole family's outside and he has three beautiful daughters, which I can start to like put myself in his shoes. He has this amazing wife, killer law practice. He's rich and every definition of the term, he's one life. And he's in there having three stents put in his heart and he's overweight. And what I thought in that moment was if this guy Has every resource and every reason to live, and it's still that hard to change and to make these things to keep himself alive with his family. Mm. What, what? recourse does an average person, mortal person without his resources have? And really that was a kind of a shocker. And I think if I'd video the two women, you know, putting in the catheter, like chain smoking, you know, like as a matter of fact, that may have showed him that video, maybe that would have changed his behavior. But you know, it's really difficult to sort of untangle what seems like the biggest Gordian knot in your life. Where do I go? Especially since sometimes we don't see the results right away. Yeah. So
2: when 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 talking about mobility and movement, you know how do you diagnose somebody's mobility? Like everybody, you know, you guys have like this superpower. You can like look at somebody just sitting or standing or walking and be like, "Oh, I see ten things wrong with like <laughs> what's happening there." Like most people don't have that ability and don't think about that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, the average person if they're pain-free is gonna say, well, this no, is not, I, I can walk and I can get up and sit down and all that kind of stuff. So where does one begin to try to self-diagnose and understand um, their own uh, mobility capacity limitations and and what they should be focused on working on?
0: Well, in this book, we, we literally identify five areas where we think that If people just kept an eye on it. Like just kept an eye on it. A vital sign. Just Mm. yeah, we we call them vital signs because we have these
2: ten things. Yeah, we
0: have these ten vital signs, but we specifically chose the word vital sign because it it started coming up more and more in the pandemic. Actually, everyone was like tracking all these vital signs like their SAO two. And you know, obviously everybody knows that 120 over 80 is like okay Mm -hmm. blood pressure, and if you go over that, it's something you should keep an eye on. And so that's why we we thought, well, if if regular people can keep an eye on a vital sign like blood pressure, then Why can't there be some movement specific Mm -hmm. or health specific vital signs? And so, um, you know, obviously the human body is the most complicated thing in the known universe, um, but we really tried to boil it down to a few areas of range of motion we thought people should keep an eye on or that we consider to be vital signs. And we do have these simple tests in the book um, that people can just do once and sort of say, okay, this is where I'm at. You know, this is something I need to keep an eye on, this is something I'm doing great at. And and you know and then the things we suggest for people to work on them we think we've suggested you know things that they can literally do like while they're watching Netflix at night or while they're still sitting at their office like we've really tried to make it so that you don't have to go to the one hour mobility balance class and you know journal in the morning in order to get it, in order to get these things done. Um, But I I think they're just some simple tests. I think if everybody had a real baseline of what their range of motion was in their big movers, their hips, their shoulders, their ankles, Mm -hmm. um, and and just literally kept an eye on it.
1: Turns out everyone has a, a universal language, running. Everyone knows, when I say run, everyone knows exactly what I mean, right? This is why the running community is global. If we use yoga as a movement language, Everyone has probably done yoga a little bit. Everyone knows what Chaturanga and downward dog is. So we, we have some touch tones of movement that we can all agree on. If I say push up, everyone knows what a push up is. But what's nice about that is we now have this formal language of diagnostic movement that mm-hmm. everyone has heard of or been at least been exposed to. And it's not the language of rehab. I think rehab gets confusing. There's so many ways to restore position or help to activate or, or normalize. And, and that is like, hey, we, I speak Esperanto, but I speak classic Greek and this is my, but this training language is pretty ubiquitous. And one of the things that Juliet pointed out was when we can make some of these diagnostics in that normative language of squatting up and down, standing on one leg. You know, suddenly, you know, can you get into this position and squeeze your butt? (laughs) Suddenly Mm -hmm. we have a universal language that reflects the movements that we do. If I say lunge, usually everyone knows what a lunge looks like or Mm -hmm. if a push-up looks like or putting your arms over your head. So that I think is a way where we can begin to cast a bigger net and have people come into understanding what it is maybe that they're limiting, or what they're we're having struggle with, and you know we set some booby traps in this book. You know, it's pretty shocking. We had we were hanging out with one of our super strong, badass athlete friends who struggled to get up off, down off the ground. Yeah, and then he was like, "Whoa, my hips!" And I was like, "Oh, your hips tight? Like yeah. I didn't know." And I think when we kind of confront people with tests in, in, that we think are very reasonable because we've got to see the world a little bit and they're confronted with it, then they are knowing, hey, maybe that's something I need to work on. And I think, again, creating that, that vital sign line helps people to make decisions once they know uh, they're above or below.
2: We're brought to you today by recovery.com. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend, Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. So early in the book, you have this test. <laughs> you know it's like okay let's see what's up like cross your legs <laughs> uh you know lower yourself down into a cross legged position and now you know try to stand up without using your hands or you know kind of using the side of your legs to like you know and i so i've go i do it and i was able to do it but like it was Hard, harder than I thought it would be. My my back kind of hurt. Like, you're Rich like, Roll. I mean, great. you're like, come yeah, on, yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. The... You're
0: like a legend, Rich.
2: It, well, my, <laughs> like, here's the thing. And this is kind of like what I wanted to get into, which is just because if you're an elite athlete or super fit, like these are not necessarily predictors of whether you have great range of motion no. or or mobility. And, and in fact, it could be quite the opposite because you're so specialized at a certain subset of activities that it makes you kind of brittle in in terms of being like a robust overall, like, you know, mobile, functional, flexible athlete. I mean, Kelly, I know you you grew up in Europe and were exposed to all different kinds of sports and became this like generalist. And that was sort of the root of like, you know, all of the work that, that you've done since and appreciating like the importance of of you know having like a robust battery of different kinds of activities that you do as an athlete. But elite athletes are just good at one thing, right? And so actually that makes them kind of fragile in the context of potentially of yeah
1: overall like, you know, kind of stability, mobility, et cetera. And how do you in an elite population, what are our minimums? And we can we can for the people who are nerding out on this deep, you know, if I'm an elite sprinter, so Stuart McMillan of Altus Track and Field. Sure, Food, I know, more, yeah, you know yeah, Stu. Yeah, yeah. I've
2: never met him, but like on Twitter, okay. I love like his feed and like yeah. all this. Shout stuff out to one of the yeah. greatest
1: coaches I've ever yeah, yeah, met. Yeah, yeah. But Stu and I got into this conversation about how much dorsiflexion, ankle range of motion, his elite sprinters needed, right? Where he's worked coaching Andre de Grasse, like pretty good sprinter. Mm-hmm. And, And he's like, my sprinters only need zero. They need zero degrees. And I was like, totally agree. That's how much they need to do their sport. But does he need more range of motion in his hips and ankles to go downstairs? And he was like, wait, what, what? And then I was like, does he train? Do you go to the weight room? Do you need more than some ankle range of motion, zero ankle range of motion to perform the training? So what we can start to say is, do you have enough range of motion? And as a coach, I wanna make sure you have enough range of motion so that you don't kind of create alternative strategies to solving movement problems. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the, the problems with being a human being is we're so robust for a long time until something changes or we can't get away with a strategy that worked for us. You may even be the best in the world at using this strategy but that strategy doesn't actually hint at the possibility or total possibility of your physiology. Mm-hmm. That if we improved your hip extension, your ability to get your knee behind your butt effectively, we actually can make you more efficient, more effective and potentially solve or prevent weird t- tweaks in the system like your low back pain or your knee pain. So. On the one hand, we, with those athletes, we wanna give credence to, hey, your job is to do this sport. What are the minimums so that we don't end up creating? And sometimes we have to use pain as a diagnostic. Oh, you're starting to get achy. Let's keep an eye on that. Mm-hmm. But for the rest of us, we have an opportunity to create a little bit more robust platform of generalism, right? And one of our tests with all of our athletes are like, oh, you think you're a good athlete? Jump into a yoga class. Let us know how you do there. Can you stand on one foot and breathe? Oh, you couldn't. Oh, maybe your elite program isn't so elite. <laughs> yeah. you, you can't even do downward dog and take a breath. So. We- this you know. is
0: we, we've been like totally against sports specialization for kids and we've been like really trying hard not to have our own kids become specialists they both play water polo and we sent them this this winter in Tahoe to a Pilates class mm. and they were destroyed for like four days and these are kids who you know are training all the time so you know we're trying to um, this isn't really related to your question but you know we are always like hey if you think your program is so great like go try someone else's program yeah. you know, if you love CrossFit go do some other program and see how you fare right especially if you're not an elite athlete, obviously, elite athletes need to get so specialized, and they have to, I think, leave a lot of things behind, right? If you look at elite cyclists, it's like, well, they have zero upper body right. strength on purpose. Um, but you know, for the rest of us, it's like, hey, we should all, you know, become generalists and at least try, try some of these other things, including our own kids.
2: It is crazy how. How untransferable some of that, like, y- y- you know, uh, real specialized fitness can be. Mm. Like, if you're a Tour de France cyclist, you're so, like, yeah, you have zero upper body strength or whatever, <laughs> you know, like, you're so adapted and efficient at doing this one thing. But the minute you take that person and put them into some other kind of environment, they're, they're hapless, right? And there isn't like a robustness to all of that. And you know, look, you have to do that to be at the highest level of that sport. And, you know, any athlete who's trying to be an elite in their specific thing is gonna get really good and efficient at that one thing. But there's gonna be, Atrophies of other muscle groups and all kinds of other, you know, sort of downstream uh, byproducts of that specialization that create physical workarounds, right? Like, so I'm just as somebody who, you know, I love the fact that you've worked with swimmers. I come from a swimming background and then did this triathlon thing and, you know, got very efficient at that one thing, but became like really not overall like all that stable, like my, like, you know, I used to be really flexible as a swimmer and I had great balance in yoga and all that. And like a lot of that, like now when I try to do that, I'm like, wow, like I'm like, Kind of messed up. Like I have a lot of work to do, and now I've got this back pain, and everyone's telling me I got to get my glutes to fire. <laughs> and I was like, I don't even know what that means. Like, yeah, what how does, does that? What does my that mean? Are I know. Fire. I know. Yeah, yeah. You know. You need to hire people. That's like, people one, of yeah. <laughs> That's like one, one of those internet. That's like one of those internet
0: things yeah, that people say. You're like, 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 get your glutes well, to fire. In You're like, fairness, what does that
2: mean? <laughs> I, I have consulted with lots of bright people who've given me great oh, advice, and sure. and 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 you know, there's and and it's been beneficial to me. But there also is that paralysis too, where it's like you have conventional. Uh, Western medicine people telling me like, you 100% need surgery. And then a whole battery of, you know, alternative modalities and practitioners, all of which are really great people who've given me a lot of tools, um, but also it's sort of like, there's so much, like I just don't quite know what to do. There I don't will, even know, that wasn't a question. I just
1: like there will be a
2: ton at you of the, about a whole bunch of different stuff, but <laughs> anyway.
1: If we, if we pull that apart, the first thing is, I think we have confused people about what is a health practice? And so I think we can actually take exercise out of it. If you have any 90 year olds or 100 year olds in your family, and a lot of people listening do, how fit and jacked are they? They probably came of an a, mm. of age in a generation where they did not, but they were doing something: good genetics plus some behaviors, good relationships. They eat. They right.
0: They moved a ton. They moved a
1: ton. Mm. They were always move. I just saw a world record set in the five k by that ninety year old woman. Did you see that? Mm, I did. Yeah, I was like, she can yeah. outrun me. That's <laughs> she's amazing. <laughs> so, one of the things we can do is help to pull that apart because I think what we said was as long as you could just crush it on the peloton, you're good. Right and, and it was easy to measure that cardiorespiratory fitness, cardiometabolic fitness and get a wattage, but it doesn't speak to all the wonders and ranges. So if you look at something like Joseph Pilates and what he was trying to solve, you can really see genius in his methodology and system. If you jump into any yoga class, there are positions that are foundational to the function of the human. And that's why yoga will persist forever. Can you get into this end range position where you don't have a lot of control? Can you breathe and stabilize there? I mean, that is just a practice that you could do forever. Layer mm-hmm. on to anyone. And I any of my athletes ask me, I'm like, "Yeah, do you, yoga. Whenever you want to do it. It's one of those all you can eat buffets." One of the things that we see then is if we sold that you know, in the season, we have this kind of competitive time, sports specialization training, sports specific training. And the only goal is to make you a better triathlete. That's the season. But we come out of the season and we're into general physical preparedness where we can start to open up a little bit and say, hey, I see that the session cost or the sport cost caused you to specialize or miss some ranges. And that's what we're not typically doing mm-hmm. with a lot of seasons, especially mm-hmm. as we go year round and our kids, you know, we you said we used to play all these different sports. We used to allow the different exposure to these positions and shapes and different things, account for all of the possibility and variability. And as that play has gone diminished, as the, as the amount of exposure has come diminished, we're realizing we're having to teach a lot of formal movement skills to kids and really good athletes because they didn't have it as a child. So in season, there's only one goal, to win. Mm-hmm. And we're gonna we're gonna burn everything we need to do on the bonfire of winning, and keep you in the game and minimize. And the second the season's over, we start to expand that a little bit. That makes sense. And that that's an easier way to wrap your head around to say it's okay that you became hyper specialized. But we didn't have the tools and didn't prepare you to say, okay, now I'm out of season. What's essential to make me robust again? And, mm-hmm.
0: and I would say too, that um, you know, just in the broader community, and, and I see this a lot with parents of kids I know that are doing athletics, is I can't tell you how many times a parent has asked me, well, I really want to get my kid into a mountain bike specific strength and conditioning program or what secret Mm. strength and conditioning programs should my kid who swims be doing? And, you know, our response to that is always like, well, they need to do general physical preparedness. Like every kid probably could stand to practice balance and get more agile and get a little bit stronger and, you know, work on their motor control and stability, like, you know, coordination. I think every kid and, and adult could stand to do all of those things. But I do think this whole idea of, you know, well, I, if I'm a specialized athlete, then all of everything, Thing I need to do is specialize. It's like, you know, it's, it's become part of our psyche. Yoga, yeah.
1: kettlebell, hill sprints. That's a pretty vicious combination. Yeah. I mean, you're <laughs> going to go a long way like that.
2: <laughs> how many, uh, how many Tour de France cyclists do you, do you have like
1: doing kettlebell <laughs> workouts?
0: Well, a lot dur- of them during the done. season, yes. yeah. during the season though, not well, as much. Uh, yeah. One of the things that I think is
1: amazing and you know, this you've run into and worked with so many mutants, you know, uh, Peter Sagan, uh-huh. could be a world champion in multiple sports. I think he's that talented. He's a, an he's, a, he's yeah, brilliant he's at what he you does. Know, uh, yeah. Levi Leipheimer is a very good family mm-hmm. friend for a long time. You know, he grew up ski racing. He's mm-hmm. a really good athlete. And sometimes I think we, it's easy to pull the athleticism out. You know, if you look at, you know, the best athletes in the world, they were always good athletes and athletics. They ne- didn't necessarily just, you know, I do this one little thing. So, you know, what we're finding though is if you want to win you have to be durable and suddenly durability comes in the form of some really simple strength training mm-hmm. how much strength training in season enough not to ruin your surfing not <laughs> enough not right. to ruin your sport enough that you you know and I you know was we one of the things we're always asked to do is we come in and can you help us untangle this we want to win make it through the season longer and we have to look at all of the pieces Tell me about your sleep. Oh, my sleep is wretched. Okay, it's really hard for us to understand what's going on. We, one time we were working with a, a CrossFit Games champion who was having this really weird knee pain. And you know, my friends are brilliant coaches and I'm not bad and we we're talking about all the things. Ultimately, she was traveling alone without her partner and she slept with the TV on at night because it made her feel safe in the room. But that TV on all night long kind of messed up her sleep a little bit, Mm -hmm. right? She didn't actually recover. And that was what made her brain start to perceive her knee as a problem. So it's important that we're looking at all of the features that kind of go into making a robust person. And sometimes it is fueling, believe it or not. And sometimes it is, you don't have any range of motion here. And some Mm -hmm. of it is, you're not even... You know, strong in this position, so it's that's why I think these single approaches don't necessarily work. We always have to take a systems approach. Yeah, and in the book, you have
2: these, you know, these ten vital signs. You go through them chapter by chapter. That begins with, you know, sort of getting up. (laughs) How do you get up off the ground? I mean, it's like basic
1: stuff, right? But then it's like hip extension. Like you, 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 you nailed it. Right, like I go ahead no just that but if i grab someone off the street and say i got 20 bucks if you can do this you'd be shocked at how we have set the bar has gotten away from us and has mm-hmm. gotten very low right and and in addressing that like
2: back to the whole like we're we've become un, unwilded mm-hmm. and we need to rewild ourselves this conversation often is 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 rather binary and i'm thinking about my friend tony riddle i don't know if you know who tony is do you know who tony is like the natural like, he's this guy in, in the uk and he oh, was yeah. he was a you know he was a strength coach and had a gym and you know had this lifestyle and and had a sort of an existential crisis and and now he's kind of like this rewilding expert who has um, broken some amazing records in barefoot running. Like he runs barefoot all over the UK and and uh, and holds these retreats and has kids, but he's taken all the furniture out of his house and there's no chairs. And like, it's all like, you know, Japanese in the, you know, you're crouching and you're squatting and you're, it's all, you know, this kind of movement and breath work and a lot of the things that you talk about. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is that it's it's rather extreme. Like yeah. you need the extremes as an example. Like here's a guy who's really doing it, you know, but for most people, the moms in your neighborhood or whatever, they're not gonna like get rid of the chairs in their house, right? So it's like, I see you guys like in the yeah. middle as a translator of, of what works and, you know, the principles behind kind of what Tony's doing, but, but translating it in a way that is accessible for like the person who lives in the world.
0: I mean, you're exactly right. Like nobody in our neighborhood is going to get rid of their living room couch and, you know, furniture yeah. <laughs> in order to the have a fully- A mid-century modern Florida's. couch, a no way. Yeah, there's like no way anybody's doing that. I agree with you. But yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right. I mean, I think that's, we're trying to really come at this from like the most reasonable place we can, which are, you know, what are the things that you can do that that can also exist within your normal environment you know like we have we have a couch and chairs in our living room but we happen to have some mats in our living room that you can sit on so we can sit on the floor and be comfortable as well and so we're just trying to really strike that balance all the time by saying hey it is important to take care of your body we believe in real rewilding the body like we're total fans of anything related to rewilding but it's also got to fit within the context of mm-hmm. people's lives i mean i think you know the Inconsistency, third, right? the third rail in this book of course is food because every Everybody, you know, the the food thing is is so charged and such a part of people's identity. Um, You know, but one of the things that people I know don't want to do is they're like, well, I'm not going to follow anything that is not going to allow me to go out to dinner with my friends every so often on the weekends. You know, if I have to follow a diet that means I can't enjoy a community meal with my friends, like I'm out. Right, Mm -hmm. and you know, so many of the the diets and suggestions people have mean they can't eat dinner with their kids, or they can't go out to dinner on the weekends with their friends. And you know, for most people, that trade off and loss of community and connection just isn't worth it from a health standpoint. And so, you know, we really tried to think about like, what can people actually do within the context of like being a regular person who wants to like be a normal part of society and not totally on the fringes.
1: Mm -hmm. Juliet has done; she is into nutrition, has done some. (laughs) nutrition coaching and like some some studying nutrition through precision nutrition. I hate that stuff. Uh, it just doesn't speak mm. to me. And I, I see all the third rail opportunities, like, you know, the, the, the cuts on the internet, I'm gonna yeah. get if I say something. <laughs> Careful. <laughs>
0: get ready, get ready, Kels. <laughs>
1: yeah. But I had to back into it because we had to talk about the health of your tissues mm-hmm. and we had to talk about your healing properties. And I deal with people who are injured. You know, oftentimes there's two cohorts of people who come and see us professionally at the high level. I used to win, I'm not winning anymore. Why am I not winning, help me. I got injured winning and I, I don't wanna be injured because it's keeping from winning. Mm-hmm. And it turns out micronutrients are hugely important to your healing and your body. And when I mean micronutrients, I'm about vitamins and minerals. And what is the revolution in performance nutrition Food. That's what we're now back in. Alan Lim, Stacy Sims. Mm. You know, hey, are you eating fruits and vegetables? Yes or no, one or zero? Because that that you know, no shade on a nine hundred calorie cup of coffee, but there's no micronutrients in that fat MCT bomb that you're having. It's not actually. I mean, it's it's a fuel, but it's not a vitamin source. There's no nourishment. There's no, no nourishment. No, yeah. Now. So if I'm gonna try to get you to use all this collagen you're taking, you better have some vitamin C on board. Well, where does vitamin C come? from? Am I just taking more pills and eating this, this ground bison? Is that my re- recipe for the future? And so what we've tried to do here in around the nutrition piece, because we had to in our work to be able to talk about keeping muscle mass on or leaning out or body composition or just having what you need on board. And it turns out people don't eat enough fruits and vegetables, period, anywhere. And especially Shocker. kids. Shocker. Shocker. <laughs> right? And so we could we could start there. And what we try to do is cast this net saying, You're a vegetarian, cool, I respect that. But let's make sure you're getting some protein and you're actually getting fruits and vegetables as a vegetarian. You're vegan. Cool. We respect that. You're carnivore. Cool. You can eat these berries with your, you know, your raw liver. Whatever that is that you need to do to be you and identify. But there are these certain metrics and baselines, yeah, that, principles, principles yeah. that underpin that that give you a lot of freedom. And that's we do think that people are smart enough to make the decisions. But then you can start to say, Wow, I thought I was eating a great way, but we just saw that study that came out that most kids aren't eating any fruits. Mm-hmm. You know, most kids are 56 percent of the kids aren't eating any vegetables. Like that may be a a long-term problem for us as a society.
2: I think it's... Pretty certain to be yeah. a long-term yeah. problem. It already is a long-term problem. That's right. You know we're that is. reaping it right now. When you look at the incidence of obesity and type two diabetes and pre-diabetes, and you know, uh, uh, you know, metabolic health is is kind of a core piece in your nutrition chapter. Like having metabolic flexibility and all of that. Like that's a newer conversation where there's a lot of emergent science coming out. So I'm super interested in in looking at that. And and, and perhaps that's a way into talking a little bit about the wearable technology. Like you've got, I assume those are are aura rings that (laughs) you got on, I got the whoop on. Um, And that's another piece when it comes to the suburban moms or like the average person we're we're now in a in a situation where we have all these data points. Like we can look at like, oh, my sleep stages and my HRV and my resting heart rate and my be- metabolic rate and my skin temperature. But it's like, what, what do, do I do, do with, with this? that? Yeah. Uh, how do I <laughs> interpret this? What That's is right. it? What's important about this? Do what, I have a second lesson point or not based on that, right? Yeah, like, and and with, you know, the kind of continuous glucose monitors also like monitoring, you know, glucose intake and how to make sense of that. I think there's a lot of risk of people leaping yes. to conclusions with this these data points and then making poorly informed decisions about Nutrition, etc., because they don't understand the complexity and the nuance of what all these data points are trying to tell them. Setting aside, also, you know, just the the accuracy of all of these things, which I think, you know, you you can't rely on, you know, too too much.
0: No, I mean, uh, you know, I am often wearing more than one tracking. So, you know, between the two of us, I mean. Kelly does really enjoy this aura ring, but he hates um, wearables and tracking as a general rule. He just, he's not into it. And I, on the other hand, am a total nerd and I love like tracking everything and seeing Mm -hmm. everything. But I think um, over my own life of having every single possible wearable and tracking every possible piece of data, for me, when push comes to shove, the only one that really matters and is really actionable for me is my step count, which I literally could get from like a $5 pedometer that was made in the 60s. You already have one on your phone. Um, Already have that on my phone, Um, you know, and you know, you're exactly right. I mean, you know, I could be wearing a Garmin and an Aura ring and do a workout, and it would track completely different calories and you know different metrics, and I would get different sleep scores, and my heart rate variability would show up as as you know different on each one. So, you know, I sort of enjoy uh, seeing at a high level, you know, how my sleep looks on my Aura ring. That's really what I use that for. We
1: recognize people are unique. And your tolerances and your history and all the things going on. So you get to, ru- we run at this always is here's what most people are gonna experience. Drinking alcohol before you go to bed typically will impact your sleep. So that doesn't mean we don't drink alcohol. That just means we make it now an informed decision about alcohol related to sleep. That, hey, I'm with friends. There's an amazing bottle of wine out. I haven't had a margarita in a long time. It's hot, I'm gonna have a margarita but I know the trade-off is here. And I think that helps us to make informed decisions about some of these behaviors. Let me tell a story about our friend who works with Whoop, Kate Courtney. I don't know if you've met Kate. I, I, yeah, yeah,
2: I, I haven't met her, but I know who she is. We have the same managers. The- oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah,
0: okay. So Kate Courtney <laughs> is
1: one of the greatest American mountain, mountain bikers yeah. cyclists ever. She's a world champion. She's a superstar and one of the most complete athletes I've ever met. Just really pays attention is thoughtful, both details. She's racing for the world championship title, her first world championship. And she wakes up and her Whoop says, poor recovery. And she's like, nope, it's wrong.
0: She has like a twelve, it's red. And she's like, she's like, yeah. no
1: way. I'm I am I feel great. I'm gonna win today. And so she just ignores it. And she goes off and wins, and then calls up whoop and is like, hey, your algorithm's off. And they're like, We're whoop, we're not off. <laughs> and and then they were like, You're right, we were off. And she got this weird data telling her to ignore how she felt. Right. And again, instead of taking that piece of information and saying, Huh, how does this You know, integrate into my behavior and my understanding of how I feel myself and trusting that because she's done that and she's so capable of it, she could have said, oh, my my device is telling me not to race today. Mm. But here we have such an incredible athlete who's done an amazing job of understanding herself, controlling what she can control, setting the parameters to win that she was like, oh, that data doesn't make sense with the whole. And I think that's amazing. And simultaneously, we have people who come in with chronic pain and persistent pain, and the first thing I ask them is how much you're walking, and tell me about your sleep. Those are the first two questions about anything that's going on, and you know, one of the things they're like, I said, great. I'm like, great. Prove it. <laughs> you know, so yeah, what gets measured it. gets managed, right? Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think you know what I take from what you just shared, and and, and what I agree with is that these are tools, and they are powerful tools if you have the right relationship with them like you have to look at trends over time yeah, and not get too right. caught up in individual data points because you know like maybe the thing flips up or like you know you don't know how the yeah. you, so it's like and look i love my whoop i i leave it on and they're a great sponsor of the show and all of that and i i get a lot of value in it and and i think on the sleep piece One thing I've learned, and and it was interesting, you talked about this in the book. Like, you realize that if you if you're trying to get eight hours of sleep, like you better be in bed for like nine nine hours. hours.
0: I mean, (laughs) I was going to because you're not actually
2: asleep the whole time that you think you're. asleep. no, I was actually going to say that when Kelly
0: was talking. I mean, that's the other key learning that this you know one of these tools have given us is that we really had no idea until we started Mm -hmm. tracking that that you know the average person is losing a whole hour of sleep. I think Matt Walker talks about that in his book as well. Uh But, you know, between Matt Walker's book and actually seeing it in real life, realizing that, oh, okay, going to bed at 10 and waking up at six is not eight hours of sleep, right. that's seven hours of sleep. Yeah, yeah, that was a big revelation yeah. for us. And and these tools are what helped us get that. So I'm with you. I mean, I think there's, there are tools. And I think if you, you know, you don't, if, as long as they're not dictating how you feel, mm-hmm. um, which I think actually can happen, but as long as they're not dictating how you feel and you have a good relationship with them, then they're great. And they and, also know, have
1: to fit in you know, early on I became sort of mini obsessed with HRV when it was just new. And do you, there was a- uh, an and H, H, yeah. It's complicated. It is. And yeah. there was an HRV device that came really, out. Can
0: I tell the story? Oh, please. yeah. Okay, so we get like an early, early HRV This is what it's like thing. to be like, This to is me. probably 2012. Like uh-huh. you probably got one of these. I don't even know no. what company it was, but. In order to track his HRV, he had to get up and be up for 15 minutes, but then he had to go back and lay down and put all these nodes all over his body Uh and then lay there for 20 minutes. This sounds like
2: a Tim Ferriss thing.
0: And and meanwhile, at this point, our kids are like, you know, seven and four and they're awake. And like, we're trying to get them ready for school and make breakfast and make lunches. And I was training for the Molokai. So I was like, like, I am
1: an elite middle-aged dad who's gonna slay this. I need this information.
0: And I finally, after like four days, I was like, dude, like this whole thing we're doing in the morning, like you need to be present helping with this kid thing. <laughs> we had you funny, and I'd be like, you just ruined it. Now, now you, you have to, to lay to here longer. So anyway, we, got, we got in this whole battle about, cause you know, he had to go. and So obviously that wasn't sustainable. And it, you mm-hmm. know, the technology has gotten so much better since then, but mm-hmm. that was where we started.
2: <laughs> but what is important to understand about heart rate variability? Like I just, all I, I know is that, okay, when it's low, like that's not good and you should chill out. And when it's high, like, okay, that's, you have
0: a green You're light to like push
1: it. <laughs> yeah, Well, I think um, that's a really great use of it. Uh, you know, I suspect you are a very durable person and then I could throw a lot of stress at you and you can swallow that down and kind of normalize the next day. That would be my guess based on, you, you, might <laughs> you might be surprised. You might be. You could suffer through. Yeah. Um, you know, we're not experts in heart rate variability. It's another piece of the equation. Yeah. We're trying to understand inputs and outputs, and what where can we help people understand why they may not be recovering or feeling as good, even though they feel like they're doing the thing. So. You know, one of the things that, uh, statement that we have is we're like, the bigger the engine, the bigger the brakes. You need a really, if you're an executive person, you're, you know, working hard, you're an athlete, you're a, a working single mother, you need to have a set of tools to be able to hit the, the brakes at the end of the night. I think it's like the moto people are like, you either wide open on the gas or you're on the brakes and the back wheel is locked up as you're mm. sliding. And I think we're really good at opening the gas now. And if you look at so much of, what happened the last 10 years before we've kind of gotten into sauna and cold and down regulation. It was all about how do we wake up and go? Yeah. And then you get to the end of the day and you don't know how to calm down. You know, we, this came to view when a few years ago, we had a friend who got a blood panel and it freaked her out because said she was pre-diabetic. And some of her liver markers were off. And so the first thing we said was, well, tell us about your day. Are you under stress? I mean, like we need to know a little bit about you, not just show me how many macros you counted. And she said, well, you know, I'm under a lot of stress. And we're like, how do you cope with that stress? And she said, well, I usually drink some wine before bed. Okay, great. So tell us about that. You know, we're curious. And she's like, well, it's it's sometimes it's two bottles of wine. Mm. And that... If I just walked in and was like, well, you are crazy. No wonder you can't drink two bottles of wine. If I take her only strategy of self coping and not understand that's the tool she was given. And that's what she discovered on her own. Then shame on me. I'm a really terrible performance coach. And I think that's where we started to really understand this this notion of trying to look at stress and how people are coping with their stress. Mm -hmm. So they can hit the brakes in their own home at that hyper-local, you don't have to go somewhere, you don't have to hire an expert, you should be able to self-soothe in the evening. Mm. And the heart rate variability is just one of those pieces, I think. Yeah, yeah.
0: I, I think also one of the things it, it, um, Kelly and I have really tried to pay attention to, and I think it took turning 40 for us to have the maturity to do this, because we both do you like to you know, bleed through our eyes and suffer yeah. in training. But that is, you know, the question we ask ourselves a lot is, do we have a desire to train? and then we actually try to listen to that and we try to not be you know not let our device override that like you know mm-hmm. it's really powerful if you're someone who uses and moves your body to actually sort of listen to that inner do i have a desire to train and then and then you know and then actually follow through with that and you know if if we wake up and don't have a desire to train then that's a day where we just walk yeah, um, and you we know, it's, it's for us that's an evolution because we sure. in, in the old days it was like we that's would, that's not yeah 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 I mean we would <laughs> yeah, it didn't matter no. it was like six days a week right. no matter what maybe you take one day off mm-hmm. and and so you know we have we really have tried to learn how to listen a little better. And to you're, our own you're talking
1: about interesting is that that's an individual. As soon as you're on a team, you're on a triathlon team, you're in a soccer team, you're going to have to perform, and this is what time practice is for everybody. So you don't have the luxury of really dialing up and dialing down and. So it becomes even more incumbent on us to ask, how can we control what we can control? You know, when we work, we're working with a a division one water polo team at a local university that's really good, Cal shout Mm out. They are- Go Bears. Go Bears. They are an incredible- <laughs> Sorry. Please. I know, I know. <laughs> oh, yeah. It
0: had to come up at some they, point. <laughs> uh,
1: they are an incredible <laughs> coaches, world-class. The women are amazing. Like I really am inspired. I just yeah. volunteer and just get to be around. And I one of the things I tell those women is they're not outworking the competition. That model has sailed. Were you just like, I'll sneak in some extra volume. I'll do a little bit extra. Everyone is doing that. So what's the limiter now? The limiter for- what we believe is how well you can adapt to the stress. Whoever can adapt the best can handle higher volume and still show up and be fresher. And, th- and we've been saying that forever, right? Mm-hmm. Whoever does the most volume is the freshest wins. I think that's like Ellen Lamb or Pavel or someone. And so then we can say, well, if that's a generality, now can we apply that to humans, right? How can I show up for my family on the weekends without being torched? Or in the evening, you know, and not not black out on the couch because I'm so exhausted. How can I adapt to the stresses in my life, whether they're good or bad, and manage that in a way that leaves me or intact or leaves me to have more stress? And one of the things that we believe is, believe it or not, people think they're working really hard. They're not, and they could actually work harder. So some Mm. of this isn't just playing defense. Don't do this because you'll may get injured. We just think actually you're only working at like 50 (laughs) percent. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like you can actually go harder.
2: I think it's a very interesting time because this conversation around recovery, um, holding back, like trying to calibrate your output so that you're properly bouncing back and can be fresh for the next day is, even if you guys have been talking about it for a long time, is pretty new. Like, you know, I'm older than you guys and I'm a product of that era where oh, yeah. it's just like, you just go as hard and as long and as much as you can until you just absolutely break yourself. (laughs) Like, you know, swimming in the eighties, it was like, I mean, we were doing 20,000 meters a day, every day and you're going in and you're just, there was no like, okay, today you're gonna ease off and you're, no, you just go in and you go as hard as you can (laughs) for as long as you can. And I walked around like a zombie for like a decade and a half. And then you roll the dice on a two week taper and, and see how it goes. And, you know, there was no like,
1: That's bananas. What you just said, by the way, is so bananas. Oh, I mean, this this
2: was the whole sport, you know, and I'm sure there were other sports that kind of approached this similarly. It was like, how much volume can we actually do? Just just to
0: add to that really quickly, I was a rower at Cal. Yeah, it's similar. And I mean, it was 30 hours a week plus of training, but, you know, we we would train for three hours in the morning and then like another four hours in the afternoon. And even though the rowing season is spring, we would start doing that on like August 1st. I mean, yeah. it was just like yeah. non. It was just like how was your destroy fueling yeah. How was your nutrition? I mean, and in all, the I hate, 90s. all I all I ate was red vines and yeah, just and bagels.
2: bagels. It w- calories, calories. It yeah. didn't, didn't matter what. Yeah. And. Um, like the idea like, oh, you need to be fresh for the workout what
0: are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. About? No, no like, one ever talked about no. that. That was like not and part of the not conversation. For
2: nothing, like yeah. like five hours of swimming a day for a race that literally is like forty seven seconds long, you know? <laughs> and and you were really good. Right? Yeah, good, but like now I look at the times now and I can't even relate to the sport. Like the the mm. the progress is extraordinary and That is due in no small part, I'm sure, to the kind of work that you guys do and understanding how the body works and the importance, the primacy of recovery, like allowing your body to repair itself in between training sessions. Like what is that about? Like literally, just being a zombie for as long as possible <laughs> and being in a chronic state of, of overtraining, which really is an injury. Like that is an yeah. injured That's It's a, a stress
0: it's it's and right. it's a stressor, on the, yeah. it's a stressor on the body. It's a stressor on the body. you can't
1: do your job or occupy a role in the team, we call that an injury. Mm-hmm. right clear mechanism injury there's a bone sticking out of your arm right there's a fever something Does being going on. a zombie count zombie I think we're going to add that in I really <laughs> yeah. that that's a really important piece i can't show up and perform the way I should perform yeah. and it's no, tricky not, you know yeah. it's tricky working with young people you know we have two teenagers and we are, turns out, the strictest parents in the whole, you know, are like, you will have to sleep. You'll have to eat these fruits and vegetables, you know. Well, I heard you
2: tell a story, like, what is, what's required in order for somebody to date your daughter these days? Have oh, you yeah, updated yeah. that? Like, you know, well, it's,
0: it's actually worked. So we, um,
2: <laughs> it's worked to prevent her from dating. Yeah, basically. Yeah, okay. I mean,
0: um, you know, just the, the myriad ways our kids are going to need to be in therapy in their 20s is, mm-hmm. it's starting, Sorry, it's starting to add up, I think. But, um, You know, Kelly used to make his own, um, like, strongman stones. He doesn't. You know, and I would come into the backyard on Normal. like a Sunday afternoon, and there he is stirring the concrete and pouring it into these molds. And I was like, "You are such a weirdo!" Like I'm even into this stuff, but that's weird. Yeah. Um, and so we've had two or three of these. You know, what do they weigh? 100, a 150 pounds. These some stones. Were, some some are a little heavier.
2: I thought you said two hundred. I think it might be two hundred pounds. And one. so we have yeah. we
0: have the Yannick these stone. stones in our yard. Um, and Kelly's rule has always been: well, when Georgia starts dating someone, like if you know if he if he or she. Um, Wants to date our daughter, they need to be able to lift up this stone. <laughs> and I said, and my point of view was like, no, 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 you don't want the kid. You know, you don't want like the oversized seventeen-year-old kid yeah. with like all the testosterone dating your daughter. I was like, that's actually the exact opposite yeah, kid exactly. you want. the, so,
2: the so, one kid so, who can lift that is yeah, actually not the kid. You yeah, you want don't you don't want daughter. that yeah, kid like, dating your
0: daughter. But nevertheless, <laughs> uh, our daughter did uh, does have this lovely boyfriend named Yannick, and uh, fortunately, the kid loves to train and he can actually pick up the stone. He uh, heard the story finally. Heard and the story.
1: it out of the yard. Yeah, and then one day, and then he, he like sent me a picture with hit the stone on his shoulder. Yeah,
0: so Kelly was so proud. You yeah. know,
1: <laughs> I I think what was what's interesting about that is uh, I actually stole that idea from I think it was Dan John, who said you know it was like this. He had this test of like overhead squatting your body weight ten times, mm-hmm. and as a test, and as you get heavier and heavier, that becomes quite a thing. But just overhead squatting a a barbell is quite a thing, but no one does that without practicing. No one does that without training. And so my my intention with this is no kid just comes in and picks up the stone without having some things built in. Like this kid trains, this kid loves to play. This kid is interested in, you know, theoretically it was a screening device and maybe it was mm. a little blunt, but you know, the yeah, idea so is I, that- we yeah. also
0: had that diet that we did in like 1999.
1: Right? Yeah, that's right, the vertical diet. You only eat protein shakes. No, it wasn't
0: vertical diet, it was something else.
1: Velocity diet. It,
0: we we briefly followed um Dan John's diet. Because we like to tinker. We're tinkers mm-hmm. in pro- this was probably like two thousand. We made it thirty six hours. And and the diet is you just eat protein powder for thirty days. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: I don't think it was 30 days. Like, was it 30 days? It was supposed oh to be 30 days. Lord help us all. Uh. But I
0: mean, keep in mind that this was in the dawn of protein powder where right. you, know, you could only get it in these, you could only get it at GNC and it was yeah. in these weight giant It was like weight gainer 900. And I actually was practicing law at this point. So I'm trying to do this uh-huh. for the, and I think we made it for 48 hours. How,
1: that is so messed up. I would like it if you didn't tell that story anymore. That is so, it shows us <laughs> that like- it,
0: it makes it okay because it was 2003.
1: <laughs> body composition is the reason I think most people come to nutrition. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're an athlete, maybe you come to nutrition because you're like, it is a secret weapon to fuel and do these things. But for most people, they initiate a conversation because it's about body composition or my cholesterol is so high, I gotta stop eating this. Yeah, either a health crisis
2: or, I mean, weight loss. When you say body composition, for most people it's weight loss. Let's say weight loss,
1: that's right. And, uh, you know, imagine if I'm just like, hey, why don't you just eat some, Protein food. powder for 30 days? No, that's <laughs> <laughs> that out metal taste in your mouth, it doesn't dear, go dear. away. Food? Yeah, food. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I think that's really, as we're trying to untangle this, you know, we keep flip-flopping back and forth between, here, if you wanna win a world championship, this is what we recommend. And we were gonna help you find your blind spots so you can be more durable. And simultaneously, because that's, I mean, that's our view through this. This is what we talk about with, all of the seals and Delta Force and all Mm -hmm. of these things. And simultaneously, we know what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So how do we scale that through? That comes from even ideas where I got to work with really good coaches Mike Bergner is a good example, who was coaching high school kids in the morning. And then he'd go home in his evening and be coaching Olympians in Olympic lifting. And being there on either side of his day, I could see the through thinking in his his methodology. What was essential? Why is he teaching this first skill? Mm-hmm. And how's that skill progressed to go to the Olympics? And we should be able to do those things with these principles that, you know, this is the foundation and then you can get really sharp and pointy as, as you need to, to, to go as far as you want. Because really, uh, you know, we always talk about potential and, you know, sometimes I think it's easy to get doom and gloom, but really you can feel better and do more in your life if you take care of the care and feeding of this, this husk.
2: Yeah, I mean the way that 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 I see kind of the value of of your work in the in the context of of at least with respect to elite athletes is with respect to the best of the best, what's good for the goose isn't always good for the gander because they're doing something so specific mm. and you know they're training really hard and they're training only specific muscle group, all that kind of stuff ultimately is potentially at odds with longevity, you know, long-term health, like all these other, you know, it's like, if you're chasing a performance goal, the, that goal is not necessarily in alignment with long-term health goals. Or even right? relationships, right? Yeah, or, or everything else in your life, yeah. right? And you kind of come in and say, well, we have all of these other things that will help you long-term be the best elite athlete, but also are in service of your life as a civilian down the line. Um, which I think which is, is going to happen. We, yeah, which yeah. Ultimately, despite you thinking you're going to be like in that elite state for the rest of your life, you will not. You know, <laughs> I was at. Um, <laughs> so, so I so I swam at Stanford in the late 80s and 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 my coach Skip Kenny recently passed away and there was a memorial service for him up in Fresno where he moved it was his hometown he moved there after he retired and so a ton of alumni, you know, people that I swam with over the years showed up for this event and I was standing at the reception and and just off to the side was Anthony Moss, who in my era was the number two, 200 butterflyer in the world. Pablo Morales, winningest NCAA swimmer in history at the time, never lost a, a race at NCAA championships. Wow. And Sean Murphy, who was a Canadian backstroker, went to the Olympics, incredible athlete, finalist at the Olympics. And all three of them, this was the era in which the underwater dolphin kick was being pioneered for the first time. And all three of these guys, like their 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 knees bow back but we're bowing backwards and they were standing like you know like they're all standing like this like my knees hyper extend a little bit but like Anthony's literally look like a bow back that way like like that right and uh, and I'm noticing this and I and I knew this about them and it's what made them those three guys were the best underwater dolphin kickers in the world at the time. Like they could go underwater faster than anybody. And I went up to Anthony, cause he had the most extreme, like, you know, bow. And I'm like, how's your back? And he's like, it's terrible. I've got bulged discs. I've had two, you know, I can't remember. I don't think he's had surgery, but he's had chronic problems. He can't do flip turns in the pool anymore. And I was like, yeah, me too, man. Like, what do you think that's about? And so I'm interested. So the reason I bring that up is, it is that contrast between, like though that that quality made them extraordinary at that one thing. But here we are, we're in our fifties, and you know right. <laughs> there's chronic pain pain problems as a result of yeah, that's just sure. the way he stands. You know, it's probably yeah. the way he's always stood. It made him great at that one thing, um, and now is causing him pain. So that that dissonance between, you know, what makes you great and elite at one thing and how you wanna feel later in life and be stable, bulletproof, you know, mobile, functional, and the rest.
1: We were hanging out with Sean Sean Payton, who is now coach at Denver, and we were working with the saints and he had just gone to a hall of fame gala and all of the coaches that he worshiped as his mentors had to be helped on stage with like multiple people helping them, they were so crippled. Mm. And he just said to himself, okay, that that can't be me. You you wanna jump in?
0: Well, yeah, we we actually just were uh, talking to our old friend, Mark Bell, Who is a world champion Mm powerlifter? I don't know if you've heard of Mark Bell. Yeah, yeah. He's the Smelly Bell guy. Mark Smelly Bell. But (laughs) uh, when he was when he won his world championship, he was 330 pounds, and sort of by all conventional metrics, like super unhealthy. Like he couldn't Mm -hmm. tie a shoe, and he felt terrible, and you know he probably his blood panel was probably horrible at that time, and he was taking massive amounts of performance enhancing drugs, and you know it's just like he was basically not doing well from a health standpoint. But that body allowed him to win. a world championship. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a few years later, he got injured doing a lift and kind of had this light bulb moment and realized that, that that wasn't how he wanted to live his whole life. And he's actually spent the last 10 years basically trying to like totally overhaul his rewild. body, rewild his body. Mm. And his transformation is exceptional. He's running marathons. And, and he's going to wow. run the Boston Marathon. Um, but he started literally by just walking 3 times a day for 10 minutes you know he really started small and and realized he had to take these real baby steps to sort of you know figure out how to get back to health and transform his body and lose all that weight and gain back some of his mobility but i mean you know it, it's been a slow process it's taken him 10 years of mm-hmm. baby steps and just adding in you know adding in different practices as his body got you know, better and more mobile and healthier. Mm-hmm. And now 10 years later, he's running a marathon next month.
1: And let me apologize to all the athletes in the 80s who went before in the 90s. <laughs> we broke a lot of people, the model, you were right. Yeah. As long as the clock was faster and you did it and solved it, There were a lot of eggs that were broken that didn't need to be broken. And if you could survive because you had the will and the coach and the support, you maybe came out of that and thrived or survived and did Mm -hmm. well enough. One of the things that we like to say is you should come out of this thing unharmed. Even if you're elite, crashes are gonna happen. Of course, there's gonna be, you know, you may have some laxity in your shoulders. There's some things like that that are, are related, but, it isn't necessarily a given that because they were able to have a greater range of motion and hyperextend their knees a little bit, it's called genu recurvatum. that doesn't always translate to low back dysfunction. Mm. But what we see is this special skill that gave them this incredible kick and big range doesn't necessarily, they, we didn't know how to control it or support it or take some of the load out of the low back. Mm. And what we did was we just said, well, as long we worship the clock, instead of saying, is there, there, are there inputs in there? Think about the nutrition, you know, I mean, just Power Bar was just on the scene. I remember hearing like, I think it's Dave Scott talking about like running with bags of figs and bananas. Bananas (laughs) and dates. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And so if that's how far we've come you know we do owe a we know what we know because we broke a lot of people, and I want to say that absolutely you're right that sometimes there is a cost at being an, an elite. there is a cost, but not necessarily it's one to one that that had to be the outcome. It was the only outcome we knew how to deliver at that time but if you look at you know what Stanford has done to support its athletes as we work there. Mm-hmm they're really sophisticated about nutrition and you know and supporting and, and it looks like a very i mean you know cuz you go back but it's it you're like where am i is this is yeah, mars it's, yeah it's a completely different place
2: from when i was there in a good way <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> well maybe, maybe um, we can say you can do this and you don't necessarily yeah. have to have spinal surgery um
2: right 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 so in thinking about like these these vital signs and and the kind of principles around mobility and stability etc um I want to talk a little bit about like some of the you know core things that the listener or somebody who's who's watching this should be thinking about incorporating into their daily routine. Like I don't want to complicate people's morning routines, of course, god forbid, but like you know, what are what are some of the key things that you think, you know, move the you know, move the needle the most that people are not
1: thinking about, not practicing about, not, you know. How about let's um Let's start with just some getting some input, beginning a conversation with your body about pain or about making yourself feel better. We think that in our clinical experiences that if we had people do a little bit of myofascial work, rolling soft tissue, self massage, whatever language you're comfortable with in the evening before they went to bed, that was a great entree into understanding your body, feeling your blind spots, getting non-threatening input into the system. So if you, in the evening could sit down next to a ball a tennis ball a, a softball mm. roller and ask yourself from the day what's sore what hurts what's achy and i'm going to commit 10 minutes the first part of this show i'm watching i'm just going to roll around on whatever ails me that's a really important conversation you could begin to have. And I'm talking about 10 minutes, like that's super reasonable. And the reason we started shifting that to the day, to the, from the day and the gym to the evening was that we saw that people didn't actually do it or wanna do it as a right. team. But in the evening, they had time and agency and nothing was happening at the end of the day. Like you're on Facebook, you're, you know, you're surfing Instagram. So there was this great moment where you could do some, some self care and 10 minutes a night, usually turns into 12 to 14 minutes because you discover something. You can sit on your coffee table, put that ball right in your hamstrings, just roll around. Then the next sort of level there is we could say, Hey, can you take a full breath in that position? So, if you're working on something or you've got some aspect of your body that hurts and you push on it and that takes your breath away or you catch your breath, then we found an area of interest. And it doesn't mean we need to shy away from that. It's okay that that's uncomfortable to compression. Mm. So, one of the first things we can do is say, Am I doing hurt, harm to myself? No, not at all. You can, if you can take a full breath in and out, you're signaling to your brain, this is safe. Nerves are king of the breath. The breath is king of the brain, that's Iyengar 101. And why breathing is such an important part of yoga is teaching your body to accept and be able to control those positions by breathing there. Your brain says, it's not a threat. So if you find a painful spot or a sore spot or an uncomfortable spot, you found a spot. And all you need to do is take a four second inhale there, contract into the ball roller and hold that for four seconds. We call that an isometric in in the parlance, right? You're just building a tension or a movement without motion in the limb, and then exhale a long time for eight seconds, long exhale. And what you'll find is if you just repeat that cycle a few times, whatever hurts in that area that you're working sometimes starts to hurt less, you're desensitizing, you're changing, some threat, resetting some threat signals. And if you started doing that on your back, your hips, your calves, your feet, what you realize is, wow, I can make myself feel better. And because you did it before you bed, it's like getting a massage, mm-hmm. you, you tend to sleep a little bit You're better. You're down regulating. Yeah, and we system. snuck in breath, breath practice. And, and you had fa- to
0: get up and down off the ground Aww, in order J-Star. to do that work.
1: <laughs> you ruined it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Exactly right, that's exactly right. Yeah.
0: yeah, and I mean, I think we talked about it a little bit earlier, but um, we are really such huge fans of people you know, taking using these practices and thinking about how they can constrain or change their environment so they don't have to think about it. Mm-hmm. You know, we have standing desks everywhere at our office, so you can sit. We have stools, but the the default is a stand, and so it just makes it not a choice if you're you know you can't rely on your willpower that day. And you know, we have mobility tools all over our living room floor, and we have easy ways to sit on the floor, and we have balance boards all over our house, and you know, ways to practice balance. And you know, I'm sure you've heard of Chris Hinshaw's um, old man balance test uh, where you put your shoes on on one. Oh, this so, is great. This is Everyone, so great. you're welcome. Everyone listening yeah. should do this test. You stand, What's it called again? it's Chris? called the old uh, Chris Hinshaw uh-huh. um, and it's called the old man balance test. And he actually created it um, so that he would have something to compete against his kids and win. And so uh, the idea is you put your socks and shoes on the floor and you stand on one leg and you reach down and grab your sock and you put on your sock without putting that foot down, and then you reach down and grab your shoe and put your shoe on and tie it, and then you switch and do it on the other side. And it's a really great, Two minute balance practice, and that's how I put my shoes on every single day. Uh-huh. You know, and that's something you know that, that's just this little you know small behavior that that we add into our day. That's easy and fun, and you can you know challenge your kids to do it. And so, you know, that's just one of those things that we've snuck in and said, hey, there are ways that you can change your environment and just slightly think about your environment differently, so that these are just things you do without having to rely on willpower or motivation.
1: Mm. I think I would struggle with that. Everyone because. struggles with it's it, hard. it's okay. Yeah. It's hard. And that's okay, You know, keep in mind that if you just grease that, I mean, I don't know where you're living, yeah. uh-huh. some kind of barefoot cult, so that's cool. But you know some of what we 're trying to do is you know is that dynamic balance work, and if you can just start to think about your environment a little differently, then that's something you never have to do ever again. I don't need you to work on balance because you did all this, and if you really want to make it super gnarly, put your shoe three feet away from you, mm-hmm. and you have to do like a you know a crazy lunge or a drinking game to get it. But when you start to shape your world this way you know, rinse, wash, repeat for a decade and let me know how that goes for you. And you, you brought it up. It's difficult for us to imagine our futures. I think in economics, we always think that the future is gonna be more valuable. I think there's a term and phrase mm-hmm, for that. Right. But in willpower, we always think Kelly started tomorrow is not gonna eat the cookie and he'll start yoga tomorrow, mm-hmm. right? But that's, that future self is never as valuable as. Yeah, and you'll have more money and more time
2: and you'll be able to do all the things that you can can do today, (laughs) right, yeah.
0: I think it's also important for people to, you know, once you, you know, with this old man balance test, for example, you know, we traveled yesterday, sat on a plane, did a lot of driving. I may have had a harder training session. And so, you know, every single day, my experience is different with it. I have some days where I just grease it and get my shoe and sock on, tie my shoe, and I'm like, I am crushing this. And then other days, based on, you know, what's been going on in my life, it's different. Mm-hmm. But it's all just sort of information I have. And I'm able to say, hey, you know, I'm struggling a little bit with my balance today. I'm feeling a little bit stiff. You know, maybe I should spend a little time, you know, mobilizing my hips today and make sure I get enough steps in because because I was you know, stuck sitting all day yesterday on a plane. It's like, you know, it's just information on right. which we can make and different the vital decisions.
1: vital sign is a good piece of data. It's called the SOLEC. Single standing one leg, eyes closed. Mm. And you should be able to stand on one leg, remove the visual field, that's with the eyes closed, and balance for 20 seconds without touching. Mm-hmm. And That's it the sounds benchmark.
0: really easy, yeah. but it's not. You yeah. know,
1: I, I was just speaking at a big <laughs> conference and a, a provider from Norway came up and he said, you know what we do is that the SOLEC is actually too hard for most people. And so what we do is we put them in front of a wall, a white wall, so you can do this with your parents so they can touch the wall. But the white wall allows them to keep their eyes open, but removes the visual information. Oh, right, right. Because what happens is as we get older, we stop feeling. I mean, remember the, fo- the foot has so much ref- real estate in the brain, right? That homunculus sort of sensory motor cortex part. And, If you take away the eyes, if you have down-regulated how good your feet are, you know, how how surfaces you're on, you take away a lot of key balance visual information. He started doing this because everyone falls, elderly fall in Norway in snowstorms because it's all white and you don't get any visual information or in crowds. People fall in crowds because you can't see where the, the ground is and understand. So, you know, it turns out of course that we're obsessed with foot function and being barefoot and having rock solid rad feet makes you better at surfing and everything else. Yeah, and it's such a simple thing, right? That that and not seems sexy. like it would be easier. That's <laughs> when you get older to <laughs> <you> get harder. <laughs> but when we when we started working on, you know, there's obviously from the, our friends at FMS and it's originally a a, a Gary Gray idea this Y balance test mm. where you can actually have someone stand on one leg and then just make a Y, you know, the the the, the first part of the Y goes out in front of you and then there's the two other arms go behind you, and you can just reach out as far as you can with your foot and take a breath there. And we work, use it as a war, dynamic warm up. I hand you a medicine ball, and then I'm like, okay, how far can you get that foot out in front of you? And suddenly you realize, oh, there is time for me to play more in some of my training. If you're Jumping on the trainer. I love to I mean mountain biking is our jam and I spend a lot of time on the trainer. And during my warmups for the trainer is when I do a lot of exploring and playing. And I see something on the internet and I'm like, ooh, that rope looks cool, or mm-hmm. that's fun. I use it as a as a warm-up device. And I think one of the things we could give to all the athletes listening and people who like to exercise is incorporate a little bit more play into your training. Still do the training. You're still gonna. We're still gonna suffer and do brutal one minute on pieces or whatever it's. We're gonna do, but there's a lot of exploration and it may be as simple as Juliet and I love to go out and play frisbee. Mm-hmm. You know, before we go.
0: Or exercise. like we have double Dutch ropes at our office. <laughs> And I, I don't know pair. the last time you tried to do double Dutch, but uh, it's really
2: hard. <laughs> it it might have been, it might be fifty years at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it was early eighties. If I've ever tried, um, it, I don't know. Uh, it was, that's like, how we it was pick like a, a playground.
0: Yeah, but you know, we have double Dutch ropes around, and we have balance boards, and we have you know, in our garage at our house, we have a pegboard, and you know, every single teenager who walks through our garage beelines directly for the pegboard and like tries their luck on the mm-hmm. pegboard. And so we just try to have these things around to make it fun and play. Yeah. And so that it's not just all like get on the bike and crush yourself. You know, we just try to try to make some of this fun because you know, it is fun to use your body and be able to use your body and connect with other people and you know, throw a ball and throw a Frisbee. and. If there you know,
1: was one thing though, people love to ask us, what's the one mobilization? What's oh, yeah, the one? I,
0: it's my favorite thing to watch Kelly's face when someone asks him this. His, he does this if like- I could just do Yeah, one hey Kelly, thing. if I just do one thing, like what would it be, you know? And, and so he, his head like tilts <laughs> to the side and then he kind of starts like twitching a little bit. Because um, well, really and
1: then, asking was what's not important, right?
0: Yeah, and so I just peek out from the background and I'm like the couch stretch.
1: I think today <laughs> we are not spending enough time with the hip and extension and if you go to a yoga class and jump into a warrior 1 where you're like wow you're really into this kind of triangle pose split stance position mm-hmm. and there's a reason there is so, that's so heavily in a lot of the movements of rehab of sort of movement practice it's such an important person. That's, position. That's the position we walk around in, being able to take my leg behind me and sprint and sprint faster. And if I wanna run faster, I'm gonna be able to need to have that knee further and further behind my butt into a lunge. But it's the one thing I think we're witnessing as modern people, because we do so much sitting and so much you know, work on the computer, we're seeing that people are losing that capacity to effectively have that leg yeah. behind them. Yeah. And we have a test in there called the couch stretch test, which is a shocker. And to your point earlier, someone said, "You know, you, hey, I can't activate my glutes. One of the things that happens is that if that into your line, so the line running down the front of your body, your quads, the connective tissue system, your hip capsule, if you can't bring that hip effectively behind you, like in a deep lunge and squeeze your butt, that tells us we sort of are, are being inhibited by that position. And oftentimes what happens is that we end up in shapes where we're not very competent. We don't even have the range or we don't have the exposure there, whatever is the limiter. And that can inhibit our ability to control that. And one of the reasons we see that stiff quads, being on a bike, kicking long lever, kicking all day mm-hmm. long, rectus femoris, all the running can make us really stiff. All of a sudden, when we're in the hip extension, or hip extension, we can't squeeze the butt effectively, or recruit very effectively. We, we call it positional inhibition, that can contribute to the loss of glute function controlling the back. So, whether it's knee pain or low back pain, and we have so many stories of us adding in these movements, some lunges, some Bulgarian split squats, some isometrics in these positions, and people's backs get better, their knees get better, their butts turn on. That would be the thing I would say. Yeah, I'm the one obsessed thing. with. The, the one, one thing. thing. I'm sorry, everybody. The one thing. The one thing. Plus plus
2: vegetables. Well, that's like the main <laughs> antidote for all the sitting and the sedentary lifestyle. That is like that is the, the low hanging fruit. Like that that that's the one lifestyle. thing that yeah. like we're all doing too much of that's contributing to all of these imbalances and ultimately uh, you know, atrophies of certain muscle groups that lead to our pelvises not being like you know, like all of the kind of things that have those lower back and knee downstream, you know, injury repercussions. And when, when people-
1: if you're listening to this and you're you're like, hey, I've got some pain in my body, it can be really daunting to say what's going on there. You know, and if I give you this laundry list of like sleep, nutrition, hydration, stress, breathing practice, you're like, whoa, 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 okay, that's a lot, I gotta work on that. But one of the things you can absolutely control right away is your range of motion. And oftentimes, when you go see a physician or we're trying to, to manage pain and positions, mm-hmm. no one really owns range of motion or position. What we end up seeing is there's all this conversation about the tissue health or getting stronger, but no one ever checks your native range of motion. And we see this actually as a feature of a lot of the very sophisticated training. So. We've had the pleasure of working with the 49ers last year. And one of the things their strength and conditioning staff has identified was the rehab staff is putting out fires and trying to get return players to the field. The strength staff is trying to develop the capacities and physiology. Let's get you stronger and fitter. Mm -hmm but no one really owned full position. So they had athletes who were coming in who were, couldn't bring their knees up very high or missing hip extension or ankles. And they didn't have. They were realizing that they weren't really seeing it. And then the rehab staff might put people out back into play, but they're, they were pain-free or healed and now they got to do their job. And the strength staff was like, didn't get enough. So enough time to develop these positions. But as a mortal person, If I discover that there's some aspect of my tissue system, I have shoulder pain, for example, just saying is a, I don't, but you get the idea. If I can't put my arm over my head, that's a really simple place to start by restoring the function of your body. And Mm -hmm. you can imagine if you're swimming and you're ineffective at putting your arm over your head, that's gonna be tricky. Sure. Right, so when we can start giving people some simple diagnostics, some vital signs around key movement features, that can be a really powerful way to untangle what seems like very complex pain problems.
2: Yeah, I mean, the question that I have as a follow-up to that is is where does flexibility come in? Because when you talk about range of motion, particularly if you're over-indexing on strength work, you're going to reduce your range of motion. Not necessarily, as, well, you shouldn't. Well, like I just know if like, if I am if I start throwing heavy weight around, like suddenly like, I, you mm. know, I'm swinging my arms around my shoulder, it doesn't feel the way it did, you know, prior to putting on a little bit more muscle mass unless I really focus on making sure that I'm maintaining that right? of flexibility. You
1: can't just say to someone get stronger. I just saw a great coach named Franz Bosch, talk about if you get hypertrophy on athletes, you just get them big. You can actually really wreck their coordination. You change the pination, That's the how the fibers align. You change lang- angles of pull. You change how the brain is interpreting what's going on. You have to account. You can't just say get stronger. Otherwise, we just give you blood pressure, you know, blood flow restriction cuffs, and an assault bike, and we would just get everyone big.
2: Well, yeah, and on the extreme. Uh, spectrum of that. Just look at a bodybuilder; they can't like they can barely move. That's yes, no, right. Yeah,
0: yeah, like no our friend. Yeah, like our all. friend Mark Bell. He yeah. literally couldn't like he had yeah. to put a shoe on with a stick. Did you watch your, Physical
1: One you know? Hundred? No, uh-huh. oh, this is this great Korean show where they brought in the like, 100. Oh, yeah, sure. I've oh, seen the ads so for it, but fun. I haven't watched it. It yet. is yeah. really He's fun. He's like ripped up
2: like Korean
1: dudes. Well, and yeah, and men like, and women who are badass, uh-huh. wrestlers, skeleton athletes, track, field, track cyclists, mm. we won't give it's it away. It's very
0: diverse though. I mean, it's like uh, every kind of, you know, there's some there, dancers. There's a really 50 mixed kilo
1: group. concrete ball. And then there's a test, they call it like the Hercules test or something Atlas. And they had to just hold it. They had a couple a strong man and, a, and well, you a, had to another You had to get yeah, it over your get head. Get it over your head. head and
0: then stand and, there and hold it. And there's a jacked
1: yeah. bodybuilder in there. You're like you're like, well, well that guy, I mean clearly well, that's the He's definitely gonna win. Like, Unless that you have uh-huh. any insider knowledge. And, and that guy couldn't even get the ball over his head and hold it for one second. Mm. Everyone else held it for two hours. Mm. He couldn't even find a position because the cost of his aesthetic drive had nothing to do with the application of that. And I think one of the things that you bring a really good point to is our fetishization of the gym and gym culture hasn't necessarily always connected to Am I training for something? What's the minimum dose in the gym so I can be a better swimmer, right? right? We're like, oh, just get bigger and stronger. Strength is never a weakness. Mm. If you can't, if it mess, starts to mess yeah, up yeah. your swim. If you can't put mm, your arms real. over your head yeah. because that's you're so fair strong valid. then. Yeah, or you just start to cramp up. You could, because, yeah. yeah. you don't have to, mm-hmm. but suddenly you, but somewhere in there, you know, I think Tyler Hamilton said in his book, Would you rather be have your hematocrit up two points or be two, two pounds lighter? He's like, Two pounds lighter, mm. you know, because strength to weight does make a difference. It, that matters. So yeah. those are all considerations. And if your point is that, I'm doing something, we call that session cost. And if that thing is removing my ability to move freely, I need to either modify it or put in another stimulus to maintain my range. It doesn't necessarily mean just because I got a little bit stronger that I have to change my technique or style, Mm -hmm. but it could certainly if we're not keeping an eye on it. And I think that was why a lot of athletes were like, hey, I'm a worse swimmer when I do this leg press.
2: Yeah, yeah, you start bulking up, and suddenly you can't, you don't have the flow and the technique and the range of motion. I believe you. Yeah. But the important distinction here is that um, mobility, like mobility work, is not the same as stretching. And you make that point pretty clearly in, in the book. Like there is a distinction between these two things. Just because you're stretching, you're not working on your your mobility. Not necessarily.
0: Not necessarily. I mean, you could be, but, you know, and, and I'll let Kelly talk about the anatomy part of this. But I mean, I think what we learned in the 80s and 90s, and I know I did when I was a D1 athlete at Cal is that, nobody ever really did much stretching cause it didn't work that much, right? We were just all passively, you know, stretching our tissues. You guys like, stretched, like you a, swing your arms around. Yeah, the yeah, like and a little the stretching. I was
2: like incredibly flexible. Yeah. And then yeah. when I got back into multi-sport in my forties, there was this idea like, oh, you shouldn't stretch if you're a runner and I kind of bought into that. And I've lost a lot of that flexibility to my detriment. Like I wish yeah. I had kept that up. And I think that that has been harmful to me.
1: Your range yeah. of motion doesn't, I wanna jump yeah, in ahead, please, on you, yeah, but please. your range of motion doesn't have to change because you age. That's the one physical, you're mm-hmm. gonna be less powerful. You may be able to maintain your aerobic power for a long time. We know that that to be true, but your ability to express your range of motion in your joints doesn't have to degrade necessarily. You may have, Bony blocks mm-hmm. and a patina of athleticism. You got to
2: work through the fascia and all right, that yeah, kind stuff. We're, right, but as we
1: take the systems approach, you being able to get up and down off the ground or flex your knee all the way doesn't have to go away, and I think that that's important right. to, to remember to consider for people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: squatting, no oh boy. <laughs>
1: People That's love to weakness. talk about squatting. They do. You know? I, I couldn't agree more. are obsessed
2: with deadlifting and squatting yeah. for some reason.
1: You know what's amazing? <laughs> we just made two new things. Uh, one of them is a, a, a pad that makes it easier easier to do a Bulgarian split squat. So you can slip this pad on the end of a barbell and mm-hmm. you can put your foot up there and it really does help you get into a lunge. And it doesn't work. People hate it. They don't, they don't like to do this movement. It doesn't sell, but it's, it, it's like one of our best ideas. We just did another thing that allows you to do hip thrusts, which is when you lay on a, like a bench and you put a barbell on your hips mm-hmm. and it's kind of a modified squat. People love that. Mm-hmm. And to your point, but it's you know why so they love much that because more fun to squat. It is not fun to sprint, lunge, get into these split stance yeah. positions. But why are these so important? like
2: why did you you know make you know an entire mm. vital sign chapter on squatting
1: like why is this so key in your mind you know really you're going to lower yourself up and down a bunch so you squat all the time whether you like it or not and notice in this uh, this book we don't talk about squatting weights we just talk okay. about the ability to access the squat and the reason that's such a fundamental position is that it ties in a lot of joints and a lot of tissue systems all at once. So we don't just look at your ankle or ankle by itself or knee by itself or hip mm-hmm. by itself. We're looking at the coordinating the system and getting up and down out of a chair, off the toilet, all of those things, very important. Cycling is a bunch of single leg squats done in that position. So what we can start to ask is, I don't always have to be a bilateral squat. Can I do a single leg squat in that position? But when we say squat, what we really mean is I'm in a hinged shape and my knee is bending towards my chest. That's really the definition of a squat. So to take squatting away means that you're gonna not be moving in your environment very well. And it's an easy diagnostic for people to quickly pick up if they're having these gross motor restrictions or can't access these positions. Mm-hmm. I think that's what's, that's amazing. And if you wanna go in Japan or toilet in another country or you're gonna find that sitting by the side of the road waiting for a bus, we should be, have access to these positions. These are mm-hmm. resting positions. Well, and shapes. I
0: also, you know, there's data to show that people in those cultures have far fewer orthopedic injuries, yeah. hip replacements, low back pain, you know, and, and sort of a lot of the chronic issues and pain problems that we have, you know, as Western humans that are sitting in chairs and have lost the ability to squat. It's malasana and yoga, yeah. right? It's
1: mm-hmm. this deep squat position. And one of the reasons that it's so important is that it's one of the ways where we can get really good flexion in the lumbar spine, where when we sit all the way down, like we're just hanging out, whether your heels are up off the ground or not, your knee comes to your chest. You take that knee in full range of motion. You take that hip into that aspect of full range of motion and the lumbar spine reverses. And so it's a restorative position for so much of the extension, arching forces that are sort of modern and endemic to us. It's a way of restoring and putting in loaded flexion into people mm-hmm. in a really graded position.
0: And that that's my, most challenged position for me of all the tests in this book. That's where I struggle the most. And you know, like you said, you wish you'd focused a little bit more. I mean, my ankle range of motion is terrible. And you know, I was still with terrible range of ankle range of motion, able to be a D one rower at Cal and go on to win three world championships in yeah. paddling. Turn. And you know, are you so,
1: pushing off the wall in a, in a squat? Uh,
0: yeah.
1: Well, certainly you are. Yeah. yeah. So it yeah. turns out maybe. You know, if we had been more effective, we could have shaved more time by getting you and training you into positions to be more efficient. Mm-hmm. Just to be clear, you don't have to be a huge squatter. I think well, a squat is a practice. We can goblet squat, hold something in front of you. You could just air squat. Mm-hmm. I think there are better ways and and more effective ways for most people to train the system. Do I need to have my mother-in-law do heavy back squats? No, no, we've definitely fetishized it because it's easy to see progress. I can put another kilo on the bar. It's easy to measure you know, that I've changed some capacity, but does it make me better at my sport? Maybe not. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there's an old saying, train the deadlift, train the hinge kettlebell swings, good mornings, those kinds of things, practice the squat.
2: Right, but the ability to squat, even if it's just air squat, do it without pain, et cetera, becomes like this proxy for longevity, right? Like the longer that you can kind of maintain your ability to do that, it puts you in a position where you're not going to fall down and break your hip, or you're going to have that kind of flexibility. Or, and, or your pelvic yeah. floor is going to yeah. work better. Or yeah. You're going
1: to start to expose the connective tissue systems of your body to the forces that were there and have been there all along because you used to toilet on the ground. I'm not trying to make romanticize. Paleo living. I don't like we watch, yeah. we watch alone and now we're like primitive we living. Watch is, alone and we
0: have primitive no living is not yeah. for me. I'm not, not. Into it's actually, it.
2: yeah, I was, I was really happy to see that. Like, there is a fetishization of like, you know, the ancestral life, lifestyle, all yeah. that. And,
0: uh, <laughs> yeah, really not for us. First time and I I'm like
2: that uh, is, I mean, listen, you talk about de- you know, the dewilding and the rewilding and all of that. Like, there is wisdom in trying to be, live our lives more in alignment with certain aspects of how we've evolved to be, et cetera. But that doesn't mean we're,
1: we need to, you know, martyr ourselves. No, the, on the contrary. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, first time I ever was sort of discovered paleo, I was like, that makes sense. I'm eating more whole foods. Like uh, that makes sense. The old osteopathic model was don't eat anything that's white and don't anything that doesn't rot. And I was like, well, that's, also really good, right? Mm. That pulls out a lot of things that potentially
0: irritant to people. So I sent this to Julia. I was like, what do you think about this? This, by the way, was in like 2003. So it was like early, Yeah, I remember. I
2: remember all of this. Paleo, right? And I did did a little,
0: I was probably still at my law firm. I did a little bit of Google research, whatever you could do back then. And the first paleo recipe that came up was a recipe for like larva soup or something. And Uh I was like, dude, Kelly, we're not doing this. Yeah. Like I was like, this is way too extreme for us. Like it's uh-huh. not up our, this whole paleo thing is like, you know, I was like but people in the Paleolithic era died at a, age 30. A I lot think. of ch- has
1: changed <laughs> in the last 150 years for sure. Yeah. And what we can say is like, you know, there's a definitely a trend to getting a little bit more light in the morning people mm-hmm. are talking about that, that yeah. that's,
2: that's there's who, you one, one, have there's, heard. there's one guy responsible yeah, we for you, that. We
0: you see you you may have heard <laughs> that you're supposed <laughs> to face <laughs> the sun in the morning yeah. the
1: um, <laughs> but what we can start to say is well what are the biologic processes that that are required for my body to function well and a good example is walking your lymphatic system is the sewage system of your body so you, everyone knows their cardiovascular system you have you know, capillaries Mm -hmm. arteries veins, but your your lymphatic system is how you move all of the other waste, normal waste from your body. So if you've injured yourself, you get swelling, all of that swelling is evacuated through your lymphatic system. Your joints are drained through your lymphatic system. The proteins break down, the small, the gut things, all of those things get recycled back into the body through lymphatic system your lymphatic system is built into your movement system. What drives the lymphatic clearage? It turns out it's pumping of the muscles. So if you don't squeeze your lower limbs, you don't actually decongest and circulate. So Andy Weil talked about, was it cross pattern motion? Well, maybe it was just that we were moving and in that moving and breathing, we're starting to decongest Mm -hmm. and move the waste out. And Mm -hmm. if you've ever had a sink that's clogged up, that is an example of what's happening when you sit on an airplane and you get Ankles. you're not decongesting.
0: Right. Which is why, you know, doctors are so obsessed with getting people up out of bed that, you know, as soon as they can after surgery, because the only way to really clear your lymph is to walk yeah, around, and keep is to moving. move, keep, and keep moving. moving. So yeah.
1: now we can start to say, well, if walking is about drainage, how much, <laughs> how many steps do I need in order to facilitate that? And it turns out, six to eight thousand is a pretty good number to get people moving. And again, that's not even about burning calories. That's not about right. strong feet. That's just it's about
2: circulation.
1: Circulation. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I think when when you right, when we can push back on this romanticizing, you know, hunting my own chickens in my backyard. I don't need to do that. But somehow there are some things that used to happen to us. We used to sit on the ground a lot. We cooked on the ground, we toiled on the ground, we slept on the ground, we walked around there's some things we did that we probably could do a little more.
2: Well, we were in, in a persistent state of like l- low energy movement, right? Like we were just kind of like moving throughout the day consistently. Ooh. That's another blue zones thing as well. Like, um, and, and we don't really do that. Like even if we, in you make this point in the book, like we, you may go to the gym and kill it, but then you sit in a chair all day and like, you know, it's certainly, <laughs> like that's me, you know, that's a lot of people, Yeah, right? and yeah. this is,
1: not and, great, and like we're not saying that that's th- flushing
2: out. You're that's not right, like, that's you not. right. Yeah, all of that kind of stuff,
1: you know, is not happening. So if you're an elite athlete or someone who trains hard, because I think that the distinguishing between an elite athlete and someone who trains like that is is your genetics and what you're doing with it. Because as you have seen, people are training really hard and have gotten really sophisticated about their training. They're training like, you know, they're training like the elites, whether they can handle it or not. Right. And one of the things we know is if you want to have a better adaptation to that, you need to keep, continue to decongest and continue to keep move along those parts. Exercise yeah. movement. That's that it, yeah. Yeah. And about, whatever that right. looks like to you. Yeah.
0: And bringing it back to sunlight, that's uh-huh. you know one of the, I mean, we're obsessed with walking as I think, you know, in just general movement and non-exercise activity throughout the day. But you know, it's also this bonus thing where you get a little bit of sunlight on your body, you decongest your tissues, you, you, mm-hmm. you know, accumulate a bunch of non-exercise check, activity. Check this out.
1: Yeah. Our daughter Caroline was a preemie and Juliet had placenta previa. Mm. Caroline comes a little early. We are being discharged from UCSF, really good hospital. Super gnarly. Caroline, who is 5'10 now, was, her APGAR was two. She was very well, wow. small and purple. And uh, she's All a monster. and purple.
0: <laughs> And yeah.
1: they were like, okay, you're leaving. And Juliet is breastfeeding. She's made this heroic effort to get milk into our kid. And they're like, you just got to give your kid these vitamins, and I was like, look at me.
0: Yeah, Kelly's like, isn't breast milk like God's food, like the <laughs>
1: yeah. perfect food? Yeah, like, like, what look are you talking about? I have to give you my know, kid and I'm these like, vitamins. I just know enough as a physical therapist to be annoying. You and know, and this I, is UCSF, like, right? This is this place. And I, that place and is the I, shit. They are the shit, and they yeah. saved both my kid and my wife. I'm very grateful. Mm. But so I, so I asked them what do you mean I have to give my kid these vitamins? I'm like, have you tasted these vitamins? Like they're awful. And why do I give my kid these vitamins? There, she's drinking milk. And they were like, well, you just really gotta do it. And I was like, what's the problem? And they said, well, the problem is women in San Francisco don't get enough sun or don't go into the sun. So there's not enough vitamin mm-hmm. D in the milk. And so the yeah. child so oftentimes- we were like,
0: So we could just go into the sun with our baby and then not have to take these mm-hmm. vitamins. And so we, you know, we just would lay our little teeny daughter, who was like six pounds at this point. We would just lay her in the sun for like three minutes a day, and she was fine. That's how they used to get rid she of jaundice the kids. Yeah. So that's,
1: but yeah. that's a, a kind of a case study of of the fact that we make some of these, from no fault of our own, we find ourselves in environments where we have to now be a little bit more conscious about some of these other things. Yeah. Um, a, a, a sort of analogous
2: uh, thing that you talk about, or, or like a counterintuitive sort of thing that I was really uh, happy to see, because I've always a- agreed with this, but never really uh, was validated for it. Which is that you should not put ice on an injury, right? Like, they, oh, like so. it's always struck me as wrong. Like, it's like, oh, you got to get the inflammation down. It's like it's inflamed for a reason. Your body right. is sending all of where, this where did stuff think, there. Where did you so figure that like, out? Wait, who so, told you that? Like wait, that's so that's crazy. I have to yeah.
0: tell. I have to tell the backstory here. So uh-huh. I think this was back in 2011 maybe, we were at the CrossFit Games and uh, we met up with a guy, Gary Reinall, who wrote the book Iced, and he was mm. really the first person to- uh, In my world. To, in, in our world, anyway, to take this different perspective on icing. And at that time, though, the guy who had, had created rice had already, he had already um, you know, turned the corner and said that That's was actually rest, terrible. ice, compression That, was, there, that was terrible advice. Um, so you know, there was starting to be this groundswell of people talking about how icing injuries was not the way to go and we put up this one hour long video on YouTube um where Kelly Kelly was interviewing Gary Renal about icing in- injuries and that thing got well, first of all, this was in the dawn of time and we were unpro. So mm-hmm. we put the video on YouTube and the title of it was like IMG underscore 447. And we just put it out, <laughs> you know, you know, it was yeah. the olden days. And we put it out and it. this thing starts getting of the thousands and thousands of views. But I mean, there's been a couple things we put out into the world that have generated a lot of hate and skepticism. Mm. And I think that icing video was probably right. top of the list because it was so shocking to people. I mean, it's just deep. If a kid injures themselves, you make an ice bag. You know, it's just this, it was so part of our understanding of how to manage an injury in the short term, that people were like really bothered by this advice. And, you know, slowly but surely, I think people, you know, the word's been getting out that mm. icing injuries is not the way that you actually, you know, you wanna Even welcome that swelling. in the swelling.
1: cold plunge community, yeah. people are realizing maybe we need to put that, that cold a little bit further yeah. away Farther from, from training, from training. Well, stimulus. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah and that's not even the same thing as icing something for hours. The reason
2: you train is to create the stimulus yes. and an adaptation. And if you are robbing your body of that adaptation by getting in the cold, then you've just undercut the purpose of the training itself. And yeah. I, I believe in where, ice baths. Did, I have yeah. an yeah. ice bath. Same I think it's us. great. But I think you have to be conscious about the timing, when the purpose, and all of that. And listen, if it's halftime at the Super Bowl and you blow your knee out and you gotta get back in the game, put some ice on it. And you, know, you, you wanna reduce that inflammation, reduce the pain so you can go, if there's an immediacy to the thing, but if you're trying to heal yourself, you want heat. You wanna get blood flow in there. You wanna get your immune system sending what it needs to be sending to that area to repair it as quickly as
1: possible.
0: Yeah, and you're right. It can be a short-term pain reliever, but it's not a great long-term strategy. Mm-hmm. If your kid gets a bee
1: sting, and give her a yeah. bag of ice. And That's if you cut thing. off your finger, yeah, yeah, yeah. you should yeah.
0: put it in ice. That's right. also another How, useful where did, you find, where did you figure yeah, like, that out? Because yeah. that was is that really just so progressive. It
2: just, seemed, it just seemed obvious to me, but it seems it was so contrarian. Like, I, I don't know. I never really talked to anybody so about contrarian. it, but I, I've always preferred putting heat on
1: any kind of injury over ice for that reason. The head athletic trainers in Major League Baseball now, Basically, say we don't ice anymore, and if you're doing mm. that, you can't keep up with, you know, how we're managing these soft tissue injuries. And really, what what you can see is, well, is the body so sophisticated that we're going to modulate this process of angiogenesis and remodeling <laughs> tissues with by getting it cold? And and for everyone who's out there who's, isn't into the cold physiology, when you have an injury your body sends out a whole bunch of chemical signals to the rest of your body. And these circulating cells, local stem cells, circulating stem cells come and repair that. The macrophages, they gobble up the tissue. And what can happen when you get something cold as you cut that connection, right, you suppress right, prostaglandin right, right. release. Yeah. That's the same reason where we say now we're like, ooh, ibuprofen, maybe let's not use ibuprofen because it may do the same you know, healing limiting mm-hmm. problem. You're going to go on, but on the other
0: side of that coin, you know, if you have to go out there and perform as an athlete and you need to take a couple of ibuprofen because that's how you're going to make it through your game or sport, then that's fine. I mean, you know, we're not anti using anti inflammatory in in the right context, but. But you know it's but I will say that you know even though there's been a conversation about this icing thing for well over 10 years, maybe 15 years at this point, I mean still it's the default though for most of the people we know who have an ACL tear or you know any kind of orthopedic surgery surgery for the recommendation from the physician to send them home to ICE or get a game ready. Mm. Um, so I mean you know we're making little baby steps in trying to get that word out, but it's still you know people really still you want feel, you feel go like for you're the doing ice something. right away
1: you know, I think that's what it is yeah. And until like so many other behaviors, until we give someone else something else to do, we' are going to default to the thing that makes me feel like I've done something you know yeah. I, t- I, I, I took this you know this pill that has micronutrients in it that must be good enough as eating a salad or vegetables mm. right or fruits and And yes, that's better than nothing. But in this situation, it just turns out now we we were incomplete in our thinking and we reserved the right to evolve our positions. And here's one where we think we we weren't as effective as we were. And Mm -hmm. and the proof is we're returning to, people to play at higher levels of function faster because now people are healing at the rates of human beings. Then we're not. we're not delaying that or retarding that healing process. We're just saying, hey, there's no such thing as a fast healer. You're gonna heal at your genetic limit. Let's at least get you to that
2: limit. Right, and not unnecessarily slow it down. I mean, it seems to me to be, a conversation around the difference between a chronic, you know, talking about inflammation, is it a chronic inflammation or is it an acute inflammation? If you have an injury, you have an acute inflammation, you need to like, you know, figure out how to address that chronic inflammation. That's a different protocol and a different set of problems that need to be looked at.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. And uh, it's okay to become more nuanced and not just attack everything with the same hammer. I think that's absolutely okay. And, and even if we just, you know, sometimes people get a little confused on this and we love getting cold. We think it's really fun. Cool. And maybe that's just the best part of it. It's super fun mm-hmm. that we feel better and, and wait for this, everyone, all you touchy feely data people, athletes that feel better tend to perform better. People that feel better in their lives tend to be more stoked and do better. So if icing, getting in a cold plunge, excuse me, makes you feel better, I'm down with it could be range of motion for your vasculature. It could just be- Well, there's ho- hormonal impacts Sure, it as well, uh, What I'm saying is there's so about. many yeah. <laughs> aspects of monkeying with being uncomfortable. You know, Laird says, Laird Hamilton says, hey, heating up and cooling down are the two most expensive processes your body engages with. Let's become more efficient at that. Well, that seems reasonable. Have mm-hmm. you ever done heat training for, Ironman? Well, no, you know, I know,
2: but I know like people who train for bad water put treadmills in saunas and things like that. So like we, we know we can
1: adapt to these yeah. things a little bit.
0: Yeah, I mean, our friend Michael Easter wrote a, a great book called The Comfort Crisis. And you know, one of his main points is that we've, you know, in our modern world, we no longer feel any discomfort. Right. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to get hot and cold. And so, you know, that's one of the 10,000 reasons that, in your shower. that we, we love those two things. But, you know, I think the other side benefit of, you know, our own heat, wow in cold point. practice is for us and this may be you know what's been the greatest part of us it, for us is that it's a chance for us to connect together mm-hmm. and then also we use it as a community building yeah, it's a social thing it's a social yeah. thing I mean, we, we've we had some of the best connections and conversations with our friends and community and people who come over for dinner in the sauna that we've had in the last 10 years yeah. and I mean so there are a myriad of well studied health benefits at this point to sauning, and definitely emerging in terms of cold plunging but you know if i could look back and say the greatest thing that you know, arsana has done for us is just connection
2: yeah uh, Gabby and Laird called the sauna the Truth Barrel, yes. and then Neil and Neil Strauss and, and Gabby had a podcast called the Truth yeah. Barrel, where they would get someone in the sauna to have a conversation. I think even, I think Tim Ferriss was the first one to do that when he had a he did Rick he had Rick Rubin in his in his sauna for a podcast conversation. Oh like my god! Well, yeah, you, the, the heat will bring the truth, and then you would see the guests yeah.
0: slowly start to like. <laughs> start by to by to the end it. of the podcast, yeah. they're sitting on the floor of the <laughs> sauna, you know, and it's like Gabby and Laird are just done. totally fine yeah. and the guest is like dead. Well, they and crank totally it up had... to
2: like 220,
0: yeah. you know? At yes. their,
2: I mean, it's no joke it how is no it joke. gets in that thing for sure. <laughs> um, but you have your own uh, sauna, cold plunge protocol in the book, I, I can't remember exactly, but I think it's three minutes in the cold and then you kind of go back yeah. a number of think times. With, think of yeah. it this
1: way, we think, we again, we're privy to a lot of tech and a lot of ideas, but we think that the functional unit of measurement is the household. It's you and your roommates, you and your partners, you and your kids and family. And that's where the real change happens. And that concept of hyperlocality, of really understanding what's going on in the context of someone's life, that's how we make the big change. So we can come in with these big principles, but ultimately it's you, and I need to understand, you know, mm-hmm. where you're gonna put this in and what your resources are in any time we can move something into the household, like a shower that gets hot and cold or massage or some kind of thing where you don't have to go out, we see that adherence goes up, we see that compliance goes up and it becomes manageable. We, right. And especially in those people who are working really hard, I want you to have your castle set up to the extent that you can so that you don't have to make another decision or go to the place. And if yeah. if it's easy for you to step out and get hot, cool, you'll do it. And mm. if it's if you have to walk across the street, the chances of you doing drop to zero. Right. Uh,
2: which which beautifully segues into the next thing I wanted to ask you about selfishly, which is I'm in the process of building a home gym right oh. now. I yes, got like a, we're in. We got like a 40 foot shipping container That's that great. we're customizing with a deck out front and yes. stuff like that. So. It's going to take a couple months. We're in the middle of the build right now, and I haven't acquired any kind of equipment for it yet. So, obviously, you two are the best people to ask. Like, what this is a what are the us. things that I should get? <laughs> yeah. What should I avoid? Like, so forty foot, it's it's big. It's pretty big.
0: Oh yeah, but it's, it's not like
2: big. unlimited space. Like, I gotta be. I have a you know, I have like a, a indoor bike trainer, and I've got a hydro rowing machine. Great. Um, so I have those two things, but then. What kind of weight equipment should I be getting? What should I be looking at? What are the essentials?
0: Quick backstory: Did you know our first gym was a shipping container? No, I didn't know that. So we actually started San Francisco CrossFit in 2005, uh, and because real estate was so expensive in San Francisco, and uh-huh. CrossFit was so emergent, and we actually weren't starting it to be a business; we were just starting it because we were like, "Hey, this CrossFit thing is fun," and yeah. you know. And I was Kelly had a full time physical therapy job; I had a big firm law firm job. So this was a complete side hustle for us, and so. So we actually had the idea to get a shipping container and put all of our equipment inside the shipping container and then we got this awning. Um, it was like a awning is awning the right word canopy. for it. Mm-hmm. This canopy right. and you could say you know, tent if you're disrespectful. We us. we were outside our entire gym was outside. For seven years, from two thousand five till two thousand twelve, and our members—you know—we had three hundred and fifty members, and our members would come and work out outside in the rain or shine. Uh-huh. Um, and eventually, we moved inside into a cool building in the Presidio. But we've we, we've been laughing during the pandemic because everyone's like, "Look at this thing I'm doing—outdoor gym." And we we're like, "Hey, we were we- the first. <laughs> like, right. we invented the outdoor gym, mm. and and we saw all the positives and negatives of having an outdoor gym um, when there's any kind of weather." But. Um, I would say that the, the yeah.
1: main thing that people sort of think is my gym at home needs to look like a college strength and conditioning platform. No. I need all the like Think about the, the old school the programs at Stanford. You walk in mm. there and you're like, whoa, this is an impressive gym. <clears throat> maybe you need a squat rack, maybe, because that's convenient. Mm-hmm. But those could be squat stands. So really, I think yeah, it comes back to, you have a couple monostructural pieces of cardio equipment, which you love that you're gonna do because it's easy to get intervals in when you're compressed for time. Otherwise go mm-hmm. out, right? Dumbbells, kettlebells, maybe one barbell for pressing overhead. I think overhead, pre- You know, we could come into and this and say, well, what are the fundamental positions and shapes we should train, especially as a person who's not 20s trying to win world championships anymore. You know, I am a huge fan of deadlifting with a hex bar, right, a mm-hmm. trap bar deadlift, because we can really get control and we can put the tissues into good shapes. But it really is a lot simpler having medicine balls, having yeah, that's things to ca- pick yeah. up and carry, those where I'd put all my energy. Like I am not, I I have such a bad wrist from paddling all those years and, uh, and broken that I can't handle a regular barbell anymore. I mm-hmm. have to use a sort of a neutral grip, but I can handle all the sandbags and really how do we make you durable in a short amount of time when you're what's the minimum effective play dose mm-hmm. so that you can go out and, and do what you want to do? And then what is it your family likes to do? What's their input? And yeah. Leaving it as open as possible as the game because it is easy to be like, oh, this is so fun. What a you know? Let me go to yeah. Rogue and get out. I mean, there's
0: a couple things yeah. I would add. It sounds like you have a bike, but I would really recommend getting an assault bike or some kind of mm-hmm. um, you know bike right. with arms if you don't know really have And and there's two reasons for that. Number one, because it seems like you do like to go hard in the paint. You really can go hard in the paint on an assault bike. But number two, in the event that anyone in your household ever faces an injury or a surgery. That is the like the, the single piece of equipment we recommend people get who have, because you can do it with three limbs. Yeah, no so
2: impact. No any.
0: impact. So if you, the amount of people that we've put on with a cast, a knee surgery, a brace on that thing and done three limbed biking is all the people. And in fact, mm. in all of our surgery recovery protocols, that's the one piece of equipment we recommend everybody get because, you know, just for your psychological health, you know, getting injured and going through a surgery and not being right. able to move your body. And that's like the first thing you can, always do is three limbed anything on that bike. So to me, that's like one of the greatest investments you can have if you can invest in a gym. And
1: and what I would say is, as you are an experienced mover, you have this ability to go out in the world and, and do those things. I want you to spend your tissue tolerance credits on actual sports. So do I care that you can full snatch? No, I don't. But I care that you can muscle snatch a dumbbell, right? And from a hang position and what we'll see is that a lot of the training decisions I think make sense for people like my age. I'm 50 this year, is I want high physiology, low skill, mm-hmm. where I can get all the bang for the buck, and then go stand up paddle or go ride right. my mountain bike or spend my you know my cool. Achilles credits running the hills instead of smoking myself sure. with exercises. Right? In the gym. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's certainly yeah, that's certainly
2: my you know attitude. high physiology. Like, I'm not trying to like. Yeah, completely wreck myself. I just wanna be sturdy, stable, mobile. Flexible, functional, pain free, so I can go and do all the other things that I enjoy, and you know, basically work on maintaining that to the best of my ability for as long as
1: possible. I are, think
0: you could do your entire. I mean, you could get a barbell if that's something that you if you like to do barbell work. But I think you could get all the stimulus you want with some dumbbells, some yeah. kettlebells, a couple of heavy balls, a few sandbags. I mean, the 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 amount of things that you can do with just those things are infinite, mm-hmm. and and. You know, to me, you can get so much bang for your buck with that. So, I mean, if you, if you like to do barbell training, then I would get a, a squat rack and a couple, you know, right. a couple pounds of weight. Don't go to put crazy. on Those things. Well, but recently yeah. one I, of our
1: friends was like, yeah. they're building their gym out and they're like, what do you think of this? I'm like, I'm not sure you need a competition bench. Yeah. Like that seems a little excessive. Like, yeah. you know, you can floor press just fine. But if you just have
2: a rack where you can, and a, and a and a, a bench or whatever, where you can do all the Great. all the multiple yeah. things. And, and they whatever, swing out, right? you yeah. can get them so yeah. they, they tuck away. And, and then
0: it's a pull up bar yeah. too, you know, you can right. make your rack a pull up bar. So that's a bonus.
2: On that subject of like making, you know, movement a priority in the home, the obvious kind of next thing that I wanna talk to you guys about is, you know, parenting and how you instill, a passion for movement and in, in 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 young people, right? Like I, it reminds me of of Peter Atia talking about um, watching his kids when they were young and realizing that kids are naturally geniuses at movement. Like they're able to do things that now you know we wish we could do. So we are all built to move. The title of your book, right? And children know exactly what to do. And somewhere along the line, we lose that. That, that touch, that connectivity, that capacity to move like a supple leopard, right? <laughs> so like, how do you yeah. guys think about this and practice it in your own home and talk about it with respect to young people?
0: I think the the way we've approached parenting in every respect is, is trying to sort of do as we do, not do as we say. And so we've always had a home gym. And I think that that is such an important part of teaching our kids how much we love movement and how much we value movement. And, you know, there's, and and I also have a group of ladies who comes over and works out at my house three or four Mm -hmm. times a week. And, and, you know, as we said, we have pegboards and pull up bars and balance boards and, you know, double under or double Dutch ropes around Uh, the house. You want to set a lot of
1: traps for your kids. Yeah. We want to, Uh we've just
0: tried to set a lot of traps and, and show them that, you know, movement is a priority for us. One of the things I've seen in now that I'm in my late forties is that, the, the friends of mine who didn't grow up moving in some way are the ones that have really struggled to figure out how to fit exercise into their life now as adults. Um, and so one of the things I really wanted and was sort of intentional about, and I think both of us were, was that I was like, when my daughters leave the home, I want them to want to move on their own, to be motivated on their own, to keep moving their body because they've learned how much better they feel if they just keep moving. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we like to tell a story way back when our daughter Georgia was like nine, we had occasion to do all this genetic testing on the whole family. We did all this genetic testing on all Sorry, of us. Sorry kids. And I know, and, uh it turned out that Georgia is had a low genetic drive to move our daughter Georgia and mm. Georgia does There's a
2: genetic marker for there's that? There's
0: a genetic marker on desire to move. Wow. And so Georgia has a low genetic drive to move and it that's actually obvious she loves to bake and left her own devices she probably would bake and watch She even TV, created and,
1: a subscription yeah, cookie She company. has a subscription mm.
0: cookie company and um And but what we so so when we got that piece of information, we realized, hey, this is a kid who might be need to be pushed a little bit more to move because she's not just she's not going to naturally get off the couch and start moving. And so we definitely made sure that, you know, she was involved in some kind of sport or activity. I think the other key thing we did is that we made movement. Our our kids were allowed to choose what type of movement they wanted to do, but not whether or not to do movement. Mm-hmm. And you know that's one of the ways I think we found ourselves to be like the strictest parents. Like we give our our kids choice, but it's within these very clear sort of parameters. And that movement was one of them. Um, movement was not whether or not they moved was not a choice. And how they wanted to move, sky's the limit. We wanted to give our kids the opportunity to try anything they wanted because I'm really a true believer that if you find a type of movement that you like and enjoy and that's fun for you then you will do it and probably for your entire life. And so my goal was to let see my daughter Georgia go off to college which she's going to do this year and know that on her own accord without any outside motivation she was she was going to know that if she kept moving that she would feel better and do better in school and have better more connected relationships and feel good in her body and be able to do things she wants to do and it's so interesting to see that you know we didn't really see that click individually for her until about 2 years ago when she was 15 or 16 mm. and now the kid who when she was younger would bake and then go sit on the t- sit on the couch and watch movies now bakes and then goes out to our home gym and deadlifts
2: so what was the <laughs> i'm interested in how that tipped from one to the other because i you know similar situation yeah. some some not frustrations but you know, queries or challenges around like how to instill or inspire movement in young teenagers that aren't interested in listening to their parents or.
0: Yes. <laughs> An expert <laughs> is
2: someone yeah. who lives a mile away. Yeah. yeah. And so, I'm it's, doing, it's not like I'm not the example, you know, no, I'm like are. Oh, I'm yes, so doing it every You're day and my wife example. is doing right. it in her own way. Like we are modeling that and yet it's not connecting. It's not
1: connecting. Necessarily. I think one of the s- solutions is when our daughters are exercising with their friends, they're in a, an environment where there's a team doing it, that reduces a lot sure. of the drag. You know, I'm like, let's go front squat and do sprints. You know, and my daughter's like, that's so boring, but you know, it lights me up. You know, I have this <laughs> insane <laughs> desire to move, you know, gamifying it, uh-huh. putting in a class setting. Those are the ways when we have, you know, you two at this end of the table, um, have, you know, you can be, live a life of austerity and put in the work and grind for its own satisfaction. But that's not the, a lot of the reason that especially young people love sure. to do it. They like to relate. Yes, it's very cool that Georgia now can go back squat. And she's in, as an aside, she's in a little bit of a power struggle with our school right now who has a great weight room because the coach there wants her to do this foundations work. And she's like, no, no, no. I don't need to do that foundations work. I just want to come in and squat. Do you know who my parents are? <laughs> yeah. Don't I get a pass on Yeah, that? she really wants you
0: know, to get a pass, but like, what do I need to do? Power not, snatch? Like what yeah. do you need? Anton is not giving her a pass. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Anton, this is for you. Yeah. So, you know, one uh, of the things I I've learned. <laughs> that's the best. Yeah. <laughs> I've learned working with this women's water polo team is that the women t- like to do things together differently than boys or men. I'll do it on my own, right? I, mm-hmm. you know. And so thinking differently about that solution putting our daughters into environments with their friends, that really made a big difference. Right. And creating a social structure around it really made a big difference. And I, I would say also, you know, what are we talking about? Do your, how fit do your 14 year old need to be? When we talk about shaping the environment, one of the things that Juliet and I figured out early on when our kids were in elementary school was we created a walking school bus. And we realized that we lived within a mile and a half of the school and we can set, we uh, we do this thing where I'd work the drop off lane. And if you've ever had a kid, you
0: work yeah. the drop off lane. It's, it's like the most depressing place on yeah. earth, the drop off lane. Open the line. door,
1: you hear the the hate and the stress of each family roils yeah. out.
0: And then you absorb I it. Love you, I, love you. You, I love you, I love you. You absorb it as the parent volunteer that's opened the door and oh it's like the God. worst experience. It's the worst.
1: <laughs> so what I said was, so maybe we don't have to do that ever again. We could just uh-huh. walk our Juliet's created this walking school bus, but that was a great example of, making it so that we all walked as a family and that wasn't one more thing we had to do. Like at the end of the day, your dad's trumping in being like, let's go exercise. You mm-hmm. know, like that was, I made my kids cry a lot. Yeah. Like teaching them to Olympic lift. Yeah,
0: like quick side story. Um, <laughs> I said, you know, Kelly has been really worried our whole kid's life about being like that dad at uh-huh. sporting events. And so, but but the problem is, the he, in my view, the pendulum swung too far. And at one point I said to Kelly, I was like, hey, so our kids should at least get some benefit from the fact that they're Kelly Starrett's kids. Like, like you don't ever coach them, or, cause he's mm, so worried about right. being that dad. Yeah. And so I said, so, I was like, you've got to start weightlifting with our daughter, Caroline. Like you've got to start weightlifting. And of course she was very resistant to it, not excited. And there were three occasions where she came in from the side yard and was crying and she was like, dad was mean, dad was mean. And so- (laughs) Look at your
1: foot pressure, kid.
0: (laughs) So anyway, that's when I realized Uh we needed to outsource. And so we actually started sending her to this Olympic lifting club and Mm -hmm. she on her own in with a group of other kids actually really learned how to like weightlifting and learned the fundamental skills with these great coaches, and you know, we took ourselves out of the equation there, and so you know, we're definitely fans of outsourcing. Yeah, it's interesting and, and
2: how that works. Like yeah. they just, no. it, it can't be the parent. It, it can't be the it parent. Just, it can't. And like yeah. I, I'm thinking of, I had Joe send on here, and he's talking about his parents, and <laughs> I was like, camp. this dude is insane. Like, <laughs> oh my, we like, just had
0: him on our podcast, waking his kids up and, at
2: four in the morning, and yeah you know, Oh my God. I like, trudge, like, so trudge up a mountain before they can open up their Christmas. Quitter's, court. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: the quitter's
1: office is closed. The, the
0: quitter's office. The, did you tell uh, you about the quitter's uh, office? Uh, no, yeah. but I
1: can imagine. I think yeah. one of the things that, you know, my, my daughters were gifted because their mother is a world champion and a sufferer and you get your mitochondria from your mom. So uh-huh. children, you're welcome. Three time world champion, superstar. we, as a family like to go into the woods and wilderness. We love to run rivers and be active outside and pulling our kids into that forces us to do those things. And so, you know, we, making your kids uncomfortable because you do this as a family is a really great way to do it. And if you, if for some families who are saying, hey, I wanna struggle or I struggle with this, let's go for a walk. After dinner for 10 minutes. That's what our family does. And it could be a simple beginning a conversation of doing that together. And again, I think we're going to have to culturally have to wrap our heads around what is it to be a human being and a member of society? You know, how do we do a better job supporting coaches? How do we put PE back? And it's a big multilayer problem, what you can do mm-hmm. is start to control some of this in home just through activity and theoretically, again, give your kids all the opportunities to do as many different sports and as diverse experiences. Yeah. And then when they start to get older, you can specialize.
0: And, and I just wanna make very clear, we have met a massive amount of resistance. You are not alone. Interesting. Um, and it, it, for in George's case, it did seem like it was more of a maturity thing. Like she turned, you know, 16 plus 17. And that was when she there liked was, being jacked. yeah, there was kind of a, a shift. I think she saw the difference in her body composition. If she exercised, like I think she probably had some external motivation from, from mm-hmm. just like wanting to look a certain she way. She had the hardest and shot then, in the
1: uh, like the yeah. league on water polo. And people were like, where did she learn to throw so hard? I'm like muscle snatch.
0: But I mean, getting our 14 <sighs> right. year old daughter who probably will be a division one water polo goalie, um, who is extremely athletic and 5'10. a gifted athlete. But I mean, getting her to like leave TikTok in her bedroom is a serious challenge. Right.
1: <laughs> so what we started doing recently is in between all of the training, we just do little micro sessions. We just keep it. It's like 20 minutes. We're just gonna do one movement. That's gonna be enough. Really the idea of never do nothing. Like there's always things you can do in your house together. And Caroline, who is crazy and awesome. She was like, hey, uh, can we throw knives out here too? <laughs> And I was like, you bet. So front squats and knives, she likes <laughs> yeah. to throw knives. Like so we have a throwing setup up really? in our side yard. So now she's like, Hey, you know, I fetch the knives. I'm like, you want to go throw knives? She's like, yeah. And I'm like, why don't we press in between? And I think that's really reasonable. So uh-huh. making about music, making it the most enjoyable experience possible, you know, Anytime you're doing any sport activity with your kids. I mean, we used to, with Caroline, we'd go hiking. We loved to hike. And we we invented these things called emo bears. And they're gummy bears. And when our daughter started getting emo Mm -hmm. and all glummy, I'd whip out the emo bear and boom, she'd be back. I was like, hey, how about a couple of gummy bears? So, you know, I think you have to do high manipulation to learn to like, to exercise and train and be in that training environment. That's a learned experience. And and I do think
0: Mm. keeping it playful and fun. I mean, we went through like a, Kelly will get mad that I describe it this way, but like a bow and arrow phase.
1: Uh Right? How did I say that? You go right ahead. We went
0: through a bow and arrow phase. So we have all these targets at our house and you know, so kids can go in the backyard and. Do that, and you know, we just anything that they're willing to do that seems fun to them. Like we're game, like we're in. You know, if they want some cool device, we're like, yes, we're in. You know, the other thing, and this is you know the most inaccessible sport for most people, but I mean, one of the most fun things we've done with our kids is ski, um, because Mm. you know nobody's on their phones. You're on the chairlift. You have this a ton of time to connect. We're outside, Um, so we've had a, a ton of fun doing that with our kids too. Um, but it's, yeah, starting it's to very catch. inaccessible but
1: i think you don't ever fun. get yeah. to take your foot off the gas i think that's really and and if we if we use this algorithm we've been talking about like scaling from you know children all the way up to the olympics think about how hard it is for adults to develop mm-hmm. the practice and love to suffer and be uncomfortable it takes a minute to do that mm-hmm. and to change those behaviors so you just have to put it in front of your kids in microdoses for decade plus. That's how long it's gonna take, I think.
0: Yeah, and our, our dear friend T.J. gave us this... Um he he told us this story, and his kids were in high school at the time, and our kids were in middle school. But he said, you know, one of the things he'd noticed with parenting is that if you think of parenting like a marathon, he noticed that a lot of parents stop running the marathon at like mile twenty-four when they're like their kids are like fifteen. Like they sort of right. give up, pull the hamstring, and you go on the yeah, the gas. foot comes off the gas foot, they're because they're pretty much baked. Yeah, they're pretty much yeah. <laughs> baked. They're pretty independent. You know, and his point of view was like, well, actually, that's when you need to put your foot on the gas. Like that's when they're the most mature, the most ab- you know, most able to you know, absorb information. They actually, they pretend like they don't, but they need the most support, mm. you know, and then that's actually the time to sort of put your foot on the gas a, as far as parenting. And so that really had an impact on us. And so I think we've been trying to, you know, make sure in our own way that, you know, we're we're gonna run across the finish line of the marathon um, and really be present and kind of stay on them when they're in high school.
1: George is a senior. She's looking at last year was looking at colleges and doesn't want to play in college, understands and recognizes that collegiate athletics is professional athletics. And it's just like, that's not Mm -hmm. for me. And But one of the things she graded every university checked on was the weight room and training facilities. And I was like, <laughs> it's perfect. And she was super bummed so sometimes she's daddy, like- Daddy's girl. Uh. Yeah,
0: Kelly was so proud. Like we had these, like we went, we went on uh-huh. this Midwestern tour, tour and she created these spreadsheets and it was like, you know, overall campus feel gym. And she actually really loved the University of Indiana. And it's like one uh-huh. of the most beautiful campuses I've ever sure. seen. It's like Hogwarts. And we went into the gym and she's like, nope. She's like, no way, I'm out. Peace out. Wow. And literally, that Why was like, Why are the kettlebells so out.
1: far from the rowing yeah, she machine? Checked she was it like off confused. Her list. Oh, and
0: and she, God. you know, she said, and, and the other thing she noticed <laughs> is she said, there's no women in the ma- in the weight room at this mm. college gym in Indiana. She's like, I'm out. So,
1: Olympic lifting and powerlifting were the original amateur sports because they really could, with just a York barbell set, you could train Mm -hmm. yourself in your basement. And if we can get back to some of those basic competencies and exposure of kids to these things, you don't have to be a weightlifter, but I want you to be able to be comfortable with that. Well, on that subject, I'm sure you've put quite a bit of thought
2: into how you would revamp uh, you know, PE, physical education mm. in in the school system, like it's a disaster. You know, when disaster. I grew up, it was the president's physical fitness test and. Dodgeball and what have you. But in terms of something that needs an upgrade, I mean, this is certainly, you know, primed for that, given the fact that childhood obesity rates are through the roof and through devices, et cetera. You know, young people are more sedentary and and less engaged with physical activity than perhaps they have ever been. So like, we need to solve this problem. And
1: and I don't think we, maybe you both have like such genetic drives to move Mm. and cope, but- you know, if you'd given me all this tech, I love how I'm you sure like
0: bucketed yeah. Rich and I into this like suffer lawyer category. I know exactly. He's <laughs> just like he's just put us over here in this like yeah. suffer lawyer. We're a, over here. <laughs> yeah,
2: we're just one unit. You're like <laughs> we're <here>? just one <laughs> unit, <laughs> <laughs> and then there's in him. his mind we represent like one thing. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Multidimensional dimensional suffer. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. Um, what you really just brought up was sort of two things. One is how can we reconfigure what we're doing during the school day where kids are mandated to be there, it's a government activity. What does that look like? So we can get more movement in, right? And, and that may mean we need to give kids three meals a day there, or they can take a snack home. They can have access to good food there for the first time. Of course, that's tricky. You know, if we just started something like the Daily Mile, which they started in the UK, mm-hmm. just kids have to walk a mile a day, right? Just during that time, who? What, what teacher can't administer a walking mile? Every kid has to walk a mile. We started the first, our kids went to, we did a Google talk in 2010 about looking at the workforce. And then we realized that we were not applying our lessons to our children. And we went into our local elementary school and said, what do you think about this radical idea of creating a different kind of classroom where kids could move more? They could stand, they could fidget, they could sit on the ground, we could give them more movement choice. And our principal was like, yes, let's do it. And then in the next course of a year, we flipped the entire school, became the first all moving school in the world. So kids had all this agency and choice Mm -hmm. and the desk was individually hired for them. So we didn't have to program in a specific program; we just made it so that there was more movement in the day and so there's that one piece of what happens if you couldn't drop your kid off you know or you had to drop your kid off to a walking place or something like that how can you How could you get more movement in because I think we need to do that yeah and then simultaneously, redefining p e is not this horror show of you know the flexed arm hang tests where we, mm. <laughs> you know, kids who don't move or don't have any families that move, how can we start to use that time to explore dance, yoga, weightlifting, how, and what movements do we think that every child should know how to do in order to progress, what movement skills? And so it becomes a skill base, just like reading or math or anything else, we could do the same thing with, with that. And there's a real opportunity for that. I think there's a real hunger and mm-hmm. an awareness because I think parents are like, holy crap, we're behind no child, no parent wants their child to be unhealthy.
0: And you know, I I do think there's a lot of separate from PE things that could be done. I mean, one of the things that drives me insane and I went to like 500 PTA meetings and now my kids are in elementary school, but our elementary school was set up so that on rainy days, the kids would stay inside at recess and watch Hmm. movies. And I was like, that is the craziest thing I've ever heard. Like, I mean, I grew up in a snowy climate and we actually would put on our snow gear and go outside and play. Um, so the notion that kids have to sit inside and watch movies when it's raining and that it's, you know, they're not gonna get a cold, they're not gonna get sick and kids actually love to play outside in the rain. Um, so that that was a, a battle I tried to fight and mm-hmm. lost. But I mean, to me, that's just one of those simple things that it's like, kids can go outside in cold weather and kids can go outside in the rain and they need to, they need to move their bodies and they need to play. Um, the other thing is that. That something like 90 percent of um, kids live within a mile and a half of their own elementary school and you know when we were kids it was like 75 percent of kids biked or, or walked to school mm-hmm. and now it's like 15 percent you know we just had this huge drop. you know schools have rebuilt themselves around the whole concept of the drop-off lane that we talked about before and so I mean yes the PE programs need to be massively revamped but I also think there's all this sort of connected stuff how do we make sure kids can move more in the classroom how do we build in things like the daily mile how do we make yeah. sure little kids are getting all the time they need to play outside at school. How do we facilitate environments where kids can walk and bike to school safely? Um, and I think even that would make a huge difference because you know tackling the specific PE pro- problem is such a huge one. It makes yeah. me feel tired to think about it. Um, but, but I mean, you don't ha-
1: agree. You don't have to solve the problem for the school district. You have to solve the problem for your classroom. So you have a child in a classroom, you can improve that classroom the teacher is the functional unit of that. And there's all of those things. And if your teacher can teach math and skills and social studies, they can teach squatting. And there are tons of resources available. What we're going to have to do is think differently about the problem because clearly who owns this? That's, that's the issue. No one wants to own it.
2: Yeah. Well, it's a, it's, it's a grassroots problem in the classroom with the teacher and the the students in that particular classroom and it's a federal right. you know mm-hmm. program issue that scales all the way up to the white house so the question is is there political will for this like i remember when you know, Michelle Obama was the first lady and yeah, there was initiatives around moving and like eating healthy and, you know, that did not go
1: well and it's like oh. insane. Do you remember right? Jamie Oliver yeah, yeah. was so, like run out of the country mean, yeah. right? yeah. it's <laughs> pizza yeah. is not so a it's vegetable. Like, how
2: dare anybody come in and try to right. like improve, you know, the health and welfare of, of young people. Like I think the last time, physical fitness in the public school system was a thing was when Arnold Schwarzenegger was talking about it, right? Like, yeah. I don't know what the current state of it is now, but I know it's decrepit in comparison to what it could be. And there's certainly a need, but there's so Huge. much bureaucratic red tape. All you can do is like you said, Kelly, is get involved in you know, your kid's classroom and try to begin there.
1: There, there is, um, the other thing is to say, okay, this, high school, middle school, and elementary school problem is beyond my skill. But then there is this thing, this kind of irregular army of, of youth sports. So the youth sport coach becomes even more important because this may be the only time where kids learn to move and play. That's a good point. And we actually, the data is pretty good that a lot of kids actually do engage in small sports. And it's not everywhere and it's not equal for sure but the data is that kids are starting to play so that we now can think, well, how can we support the coaches? Because that may be the only place Mm. where kids are getting any actual coaching. It's not about basketball, it's how do I self-regulate and how do I calm down and Mm -hmm. what does movement skills look like? So we have to, I think, be clever enough to look at some other opportunities to support. And right now, you know, there's Positive Coaching Alliance and some of these things, but who teaches volunteer coaches how to coach kids? It doesn't happen. Well,
0: and I think a lot of, you know, as we were talking about before where, you know, your kids often don't want to hear the message from you, but they can better hear it from other people in their lives. And and oftentimes that could be a coach. And so if youth coaches did get into the game of a little bit of like, you know, teaching kids how to take care of their tissues and, you know, telling kids they do need to sleep and maybe get off their phones, like that would be such a support for, I think all of us parents who are trying really hard within within our own homes. You know, sometimes that outside voice is really what kids need to hear to actually try to make change, and so <laughs> yeah, I they think, which hear it from their parents. No, they can't hear it from yeah. their parents. No. But man, if we had our youth coaches out there saying, "Hey, you guys really need to put your phone down and get eight hours of sleep if you want to perform well on the soccer game tomorrow," and "Hey, you guys should probably eat a few vegetables," and "Hey, here's this two dollar foam roller. Like if your calves are sore, you can do some input. I mean, that alone would make a huge difference."
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but how dare you? You know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> how dare you volunteer, coaching? It's tricky. Yeah. It's tricky. It, it, it's really it, complicated. It
2: shouldn't be, but it is, yeah. right?
1: And you know, we're, we'll we'll let you know how the experiment goes. You know, yeah. with our, our kids. Well,
2: also, you know, on the subject of like the White House and stuff like that, is it correct that you have worked with the president? Is this true? That's correct. Is That's it, correct. Like, can you? Con- is this well, like two presidents? Two presidents. What is it, What are we talking about here?
1: Uh, we. I have a friend who is uh, the physical therapist and coach was to President Obama Uh and also to President Biden. And he is a good friend of ours and says, hey, we need help with resources or do you have ideas for this or how do we solve this problem? And uh, I think we can say now because he's just a citizen, but one of the strangest experiences we had is making an air gapped computer full of mobility drills and things Uh where I talked directly to President Obama. That was very uncomfortable for me.
0: And, and little strategies, you know, like we're obviously huge fans of standing desks, but mm-hmm. um, Obama was writing his next book and he finds that he can concentrate the most and the best when he is sitting. Mm. And so he, but he also was uncomfortable and couldn't figure out a good sitting setup. So we consulted with him on, okay, here's sort of a sitting desk setup where you can still manage to get some movement in and you know fidget and be able to keep your brain alive, but actually be in a sitting position. I mean, it's really like minor stuff like that, but that makes a difference in Uh, the end. It's
1: pretty cool. How do we keep weight on a, Aging executive? I mean this is, these are the real questions. How do we you know whoever age, who, Aging Executive You know ha, whoever is doing this job, how can we support them so that they can do the job the yeah. best? That's mm-hmm. really nice. And,
0: and we we have put our name in the hat, although no, no one's come a calling, but our name is in the hat to be on the president's physical fitness council. Which <laughs> oh yeah. We would well that's really, a no brainer. We would love to do that. I mean that yeah. would really be like, you know, an amazing thing. And we are think you we, we right think now? we have something yeah. to contribute, but no one's come a calling. So.
2: Well, I'm, I'm setting you up for that layup and, uh, and, and you know, on the subject of keeping uh, President Obama on the basketball court, right?
0: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> well, yes, that's very true. Um, you know, one of the, this is a great allegory for everything we're talking about. President Obama is a great athlete and very competitive. He's said as much. And he, one of the things that was happening was he would play basketball in the, at the White House and he was ruining a lot of cabinet members and staff members. They mm-hmm. were having catastrophic injuries. <laughs> the most dangerous sport for a middle-aged He's person. was burning out his whole staff. He is burning out his staff. Yeah. They were
0: like tearing their ACLs. Um, and
1: and Quad ligament <laughs> tears, their Achilles. Achilles. You know, the most dangerous sport for middle-aged people is basketball because you go from zero Fast to lateral. sprinting, yeah, to lateral cutting, movement, cutting. don't have the tissues. Uh-huh. You haven't exposed yourself to, when's the last time you jumped rope, much less mm. cut? Well,
0: I think it's now been surpassed by pickleball though. Mm. That's true. I don't know if we have the, the perfect data on yeah. that, but we think. But that, I think that's
1: that's the allegory for how can you be prepared to come <laughs> off the couch and theoretically uh-huh. come out intact and have yeah. more fun, especially we, when the when be the game ready. When the president moment. asks you to play basketball, will you be ready? Yeah, that's what I want. Yeah, <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, and without having to sacrifice your ACL. Right? <laughs> um, this was super fun, you guys. I, I really appreciate your time. Uh, I, I'm a huge fan of the work that you're doing. I think it's really Thank important. You so much. Um, and the new book, Built to Move, uh, you know, it's got, like we talked about, the 10 chapters, which kind of goes through Siri all of these practices that are very easily incorporated into uh, into our lives and and obviously you know super important to keep us moving and stable and mobile and flexible and all the good stuff and uh, i might just start practicing <laughs>
1: <laughs> can't wait to see do you yeah, have any
0: blind spots can't spot. wait to see yeah let us know if you have any blind spots and we're really grateful to have that's
2: a whole other podcast Juliet, but we'll get to Let's it. Let's do it. Yeah, we can then, you and I can sit down and, and have a Sufferfest slash uh, recovering <laughs> lawyer, retired lawyer yes. conversation as well.
0: I look forward to that. Thank um, you so much for having us. It yeah, was really fun to chat.
2: Really, really, really cool. So if people want to check you out, obviously pick up the book, uh, Built to Move, but readystatecom You've got tons of materials and programs there. Your YouTube channel, The Ready State as well. You know, a million videos and on Instagram. Yep. Anywhere else you want to direct people? That's it. Mm -hmm. Those are the
0: two things, built to move.com.
2: All right. Thanks you guys. Thank Thank you you so much. Cheers. Cheers. Until next time, peace. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, awesome and very helpful. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner, and other subjects, please subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page at richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo with additional audio engineering by Cale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake portraits by davy greenberg graphic and social media assets courtesy of daniel solis as well as dan drake thank you georgia whaley for copywriting and website management and of course our theme music was created by tyler pyatt trapper pyatt and harry mathis appreciate the love love the support see you back here soon peace plants
1: namaste